0: Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and this episode serves as the outro to episode 55 of my interview with John Decker. In that conversation, John and I discussed the depth of corruption in American politics. I made serious allegations about Hillary Clinton specifically and wanted to dive further into the evidence from which I drew those conclusions. I quickly learned that several lifetimes could be spent exposing the Clinton crime family's corruption, and so chose to focus on the weirder, darker, and more complicated elements of their organized crime syndicate. What follows is not meant to be a political or ideological opinion piece on the Clintons, but rather an expose about arguably the most successful criminal con artists in the world. What I'm proposing is that there exists, and has existed, a ruling shadow government. Members of the shadow government have infiltrated the highest levels of American politics across both parties while these subversives claim to represent the people through smoke and mirrors manipulation. In truth, they represent the interests of the deep state. The deep state, in turn, represents an hierarchical, compartmentalized organized crime syndicate. This cabal, or secret government, has consolidated power and wealth by infiltrating and controlling the most powerful banking institutions, energy companies, intelligence agencies, military forces, organized crime rings, academic institutions, non-profits, organized religions, and occult secret societies in the world. The ruling committee of the deep state uses any means necessary to ensure their shadow government puppets are placed as leaders of elected governments. That way, shadow governors can take legitimate legal actions to facilitate and protect the criminal interests of their deep state masters. They support illicit and immoral industries that finance the deep state by abusing their positions of power. These industries include money laundering, drug smuggling, gun running, weapons manufacturing, human trafficking, and central banking. In what follows, I will argue that Hillary Clinton, who I voted for in 2016, is one of, if not the single most powerful agents of the shadow government. However, this criminal conspiracy extends far past Clinton. Other suspected members of the shadow government against whom I'll present evidence in this essay include former President Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, current President Joe Biden former Vice President Dick Cheney, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and Madeleine Albright, former Attorney General William Barr, Bill Clinton Chief of Staff Obama Campaign Manager Hillary Clinton Campaign Manager John Podesta, and former Hillary Clinton Chiefs of Staff Huma Abedin and Tamara Luzado. In this episode, I start with my personal journey about how I went from admiring and voting for Hillary Clinton to accepting that I was dead wrong about this woman. We first highlight Clinton's collusion with the Democratic National Committee in stonewalling Tulsi Gabbard's political career. Next, we dive into the early Clinton political years. We focus on how Bill and Hillary used their respective positions as governor of Arkansas and partner at Rose Law Firm to facilitate cocaine smuggling and money laundering in the state. From there, we explore the sordid history of the CIA and organized crime mind control project MKUltra and the intelligence agency's ties to human trafficking. We highlight the case study of hero and MK-Ultra survivor Kathy O'Brien and detail the dark junction of America's OSS with the Nazi SS at the end of World War II through Operation Paperclip. We then discuss the cabal's participation in blood ritual in the worship of the dark entity Baphomet. We also highlight the story of Satanist, psychological warfare expert, intelligence officer, and child torturer, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino. From there, we cover the demonic entity Moloch in the cabal's depraved resort, Bohemian Grove. Next, we consider the WikiLeaks release of John Podesta's personal emails during the 2016 election. Episode 56, part one, ends as we highlight the importance of the Pizzagate scandal that resulted from the email leak, how it has never been debunked, and what it revealed about our political elites. In episode 57, part two, we begin with the appearance of satanic performance artist Marina Abramovich in the Podesta emails, her affinity for spirit cooking, and the cabal's very real practices of cannibalism and adrenochrome harvesting. We then discuss the snuff film, or murder porn industry, the existence of deep underground military bases, and the notorious Frazzledrip. Frazzled.rip is an alleged snuff film found on Anthony Weiner's laptop featuring Hillary Clinton and his ex-wife, Huma Abedin. Next, we consider allegations and supporting evidence that the Clinton crime family assassinates political opponents. We examined six suspicious deaths, those of Vince Foster, John F. Kennedy Jr., Seth Rich, Jeffrey Epstein... Jean-Luc Brunel, and Mark Middleton. We dive into their money laundering apparatus, the Clinton Foundation, and focus on the destruction of Haiti caused by the Clintons. Our love, prayers, and support are with the people of Haiti as we acknowledge and hold accountable the deep state for the human rights atrocities that have taken place in their country. We end this essay with a re-examination of our election process, highlighting the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections as case studies. From there we ask, who is the military-industrial complex? The episode concludes with some thoughts on losing your heroes and on finding real ones. I'll forewarn the reader that the content to follow is extremely challenging and that I'll be alleging Hillary is directly involved in, hum- in human trafficking and satanic ritualistic abuse of children. I'm well aware of the magnitude of these allegations and I can understand if one is inclined to dismiss them out of hand as I would have done myself just a couple of years ago. However, as I've conducted research into the cabal and listened to the testimony of SRA survivors, I've been forced to recognize that this is the truth, that the depths of Clinton's corruption and many other so-called leaders of the world is far, far worse than we could have imagined. To Hillary Rodham Clinton, the public is aware of your crimes and we will not forget. Your days of wanton corruption, self-serving government overreach, and depraved self-indulgence are over. You and your cabal of co-conspirators will be held accountable. There will be justice for those against whom you've committed war crimes and crimes against humanity. To everyone else, there is no need to hide. There is some place to run, and it's right at them with the truth. Please enjoy the episode. Who is Hillary Rodham Clinton? Publishing these allegations will undoubtedly open me up to the worst kind of invectives. That I'm a far right extremist conspiracy theorist. That I am a misogynistic member of QAnon looking to violently overthrow the government. That I'm racist, somehow, even though Hillary and I are both white. That I'm anti Semitic, somehow, even though I'm Jewish and she claims to be Christian that I'm whatever slander of the day the woke mob and mainstream media uses to silence investigative journalists. The truth is that I voted Democrat in every presidential election since I've been eligible, including Clinton in 2016 and Biden in 2020. On Substack, I've included a Facebook post of mine from July 2016, which highlighted my support for Clinton's candidacy. Like many Americans, I was fooled by her hollow slogans and false cries of liberalism. Now, having recognized my mistake, I'm hoping to share the facts I've discovered and conclusions I've reached with others searching for truth, disturbing and disillusioning though they may be. After two years of intensely researching the deep state, I still couldn't tell you what QAnon actually is, other than a label used by the establishment to censor and vilify their opponents. I have never and will never advocate violence and instead consistently advocate for the use of nonviolent non-cooperation with tyranny as a means for freeing our country and our planet from this cabal. And while I've undoubtedly gotten things wrong and am prone to mistakes, everything I write comes from a place of honesty, authenticity, and courage based on the facts and circumstances available as a publication. Losing your heroes. I've lost more heroes than I can count as I've learned about the disgusting, seedy underbelly of society in which the elitist class participates. However, for every 10 heroes I've lost, I've discovered someone who inspires me a 100 times more than these criminal charlatans ever could. One such woman is the quintessential example of an American patriot, Tulsi Gabbard. When Gabbard, a veteran and congresswoman from Hawaii, ran for president in the 2020 Democratic primaries, she faced severe pushback from the DNC and party establishment. Her crime? Refusing to be bought and paid for by the giant corporations who owned the Uniparty. For example, the 2016 WikiLeaks email revealed how the DNC... Hillary Clinton, and Hillary's campaign manager, John Podesta, conspired against Gabbard's career after she had the nerve to endorse a non-Clinton Democrat for presidency. I'll have much more to say about Hillary Clinton, John Podesta, and WikiLeaks later.
1: I am truly honored to nominate Bernie Sanders for President of the United States.
2: In an email released by WikiLeaks sent to Tulsi Gabbard in February of 2016, it says, Representative Gabbard, we were very disappointed to hear that you would resign your position with the DNC so you could endorse Bernie Sanders, a man who has never been a Democrat before. Hillary Clinton will be our party's nominee, and you standing on ceremony to support the sinking Bernie Sanders ship is disrespectful to Hillary Clinton. You have called both myself and Michael Kive's Before, about helping your campaign raise money. We no longer trust your judgment, so we'll not be raising money for your campaign. That email was then forwarded to the Clinton campaign and John Podesta. With the message,
0: Hammer Dropped. In October 2019, Hillary Clinton slandered Gabbard's name by alleging she was a Russian plant. This was a form of McCarthyism with no substantiating evidence, and as we'll discuss, not the first time she's used this tactic against a political opponent. Of course, to a woman as immoral and unethical as Hillary Clinton, the truth is inconsequential. Here's Clinton on David Plouffe's podcast, Campaign HQ.
3: I'm not making any predictions, but I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic (laughs) primary and are grooming her to be the third-party candidate. She's a favorite of the Russians. They have a bunch of sites and bots and other ways of supporting her so far.
0: After Clinton made these baseless allegations, Gabbard immediately hit back, a lesson for all of us when dealing with criminals and bullies. She tweeted, great. Thank you, Hillary Clinton. You, the queen of warmongers, embodiment of corruption and personification of the rot that has sickened the Democratic Party for so long, have finally come out from behind the curtain. From the day I announced my candidacy, there has been a concerted campaign to destroy my reputation. We wondered who was behind it and why. Now we know it was always you, through your proxies and powerful allies in the corporate media and war machine, afraid of the threat I pose. It's now clear that this primary is between you and me. Don't cowardly hide behind your proxies. Join the race directly. The DNC went on to change the rules for who could participate in the March 15th, 2020 debate a move that, coincidentally, only impacted Tulsi Gabbard and prevented her from debating with Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Lifetime establishment pawn Biden went on to win the primary and attain control of the presidency with the devastating results we've seen play out over his first three years in office. Here's Gabbard discussing the rule change.
4: The only woman candidate left in the race, the only woman of color, and the first female combat veteran ever to run for the presidency has a voice. The DNC and their corporate media partners say... No thanks.
5: As of now, the criteria doesn't work. You're not going to be there.
4: Which, by the, the way, they just they just, they changed, it. It. They they just changed, changed it. They just changed it. <laughs> they
5: have changed it throughout the race. It would yeah. seem at times to include people. So after Super uh, Tuesday,
4: based on the qualifications, I would have been on the debate stage. And then they changed it.
0: This type of collusion by the DNC to support establishment candidates over populist ones is
4: exactly what we
0: saw take place in 2016, when Clinton's campaign was given every advantage possible to ensure she beat out Bernie Sanders. But before we get to the 2016 campaign, we should take a look back at the long history of the Clinton crime family's corruption. As we'll discover, warmongering rot is a term far too kind for Hillary Clinton and her depraved husband Bill, the 42nd President of the United States. Arkansas. Cocaine smuggling and money laundering. The true history of the Clintons' rise to political power is quite different than the one supported by the captured mainstream media. The following history comes from investigative journalist Whitney Webb's book, One Nation Under Blackmail, Volume 1, The Sordid Union Between Intelligence and Organized Crime that Gave Rise to Jeffrey Epstein. Here's a section from the audiobook of Chapter 8, titled Clinton Contra, narrated by Grace Noble.
6: Down in Arkansas. Hot Springs, Arkansas was, to quote Roger Morris, the Geneva of organized crime in the 1920s and 30s. It's where the barons, the gangster bosses, came to meet. That association certainly continued through the decades. Influence over the city, considered a neutral territory for the different, often competing criminal gangs, families, and outfits, was held by Oni Madden, a New York gangster whose distinctive nickname was The Killer. Madden was reportedly something of an ambassador for Meyer Lansky and counted among his close associates, Frank Costello who popped up in hot springs from time to time. New Orleans crime boss Carlos Marcello was reported to have held significant influence over hot springs as well. There is some evidence, albeit circumstantial, that a young Bill Clinton might have had contact with these forces while growing up in Arkansas. The man that Clinton had often referred to as the most commanding male presence in his life and a father figure was his uncle, Raymond Clinton. Outwardly, Uncle Raymond ran a profitable car dealership, but he was also known to have engaged in various vices and backroom wheeling and dealing. According to a former Arkansas FBI agent, Raymond ran some slot machines that he had scattered about town, while close business associates have admitted that the car dealer had considerable dealings in the underworld. Along the way, Raymond began to collect political power. He cultivated ties to the state's Democratic Party, but also political figures in surrounding states, like Alabama's George Wallace. These ties paid off in a big way for Bill Clinton in 1968. It was a big year for Bill. He had just won a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford University in the United Kingdom, and he was on the verge of being drafted. Being shipped off to war in Vietnam would have derailed Oxford entirely, and so Uncle Raymond leapt into action. Using his political connections, he was able to secure for Bill a draft deferral. Uncle Raymond tended to crop up at opportune moments such as these, where Clinton's political destiny seemed to hang in the balance. In 1974, when Bill embarked on his first political campaign for Arkansas's House of Representatives, Raymond arranged for a $10,000 loan for his nephew from the First National Bank of Hot Springs. While Bill would lose the race, Two years later, he secured a position as Arkansas's Attorney General. This was the springboard for his next venture, the 1978 campaign for governor. This campaign was a success, thanks in no small part to loans and donations from Arkansas's economic elite. Here, once again, one could find the name of Raymond Clinton. In addition to the assistance provided by Uncle Raymond and his friends, Clinton may have had other benefactors who helped shape his early political education, if not his career itself. There are hints, rumors, and intimations of a relationship with the CIA during the 1970s, particularly during his year at Oxford, which had been secured with the aid of Raymond. A former CIA officer told Roger Morris and Sally Denton that he had seen Clinton's name on a list of informants used by the agency's Operation Chaos, the surveillance program aimed at the anti-war and civil rights movements. Another officer stated that part of Clinton's arrangement as an informer had been further insurance against the draft. Reportedly, Clinton was regularly debriefed by the CIA, who he supplied with information concerning activist groups on British campuses. The underworld figures like Barry Seal, who haunted Mina, seemed to always operate with much less than six degrees of separation from Clinton during his time as the state's governor. In his 1999 confessional exposé, Crossfire, witness in the Clinton investigation, former Arkansas policeman turned personal driver and security guard for Bill Clinton, L.D. Brown, recounts how Clinton encouraged him to seek out a post at the CIA. Clinton allegedly went so far as to edit the essay Brown wrote for this employment application. The essay topic was drug smuggling in Central America. Upon receiving his application, the CIA put Brown in touch with none other than SEAL. SEAL was far from being the only affiliate of Oliver North running a contra-connected operation in Arkansas. Terry Reed, who had worked for North since 1983, claimed to have been put in touch with SEAL by North and established a base just 10 miles north of Mena, in Nella, Arkansas, where Nicaraguan Contras and other recruits from Latin America were trained in resupply missions, night landings, precision paradrops, and similar maneuvers, according to Alexander Cockburn and Jeffrey St. Clair. Reed charges that another figure in this circle, with particularly close ties to SEAL, was Dan Lassiter. Lasseter was the ultimate Little Rock operator. During the day, he was renowned for his lucrative bond brokerage business, Lasseter & Company, while after nightfall, he had a reputation as a party animal. Lasseter was plugged into the world of Arkansas cocaine, something he shared with his close friend, Roger Clinton. Roger was, of course, the brother of then-governor Bill Clinton, it was revealed during the course of the Whitewater investigations that Roger Clinton had even spent several years working for Lasseter. Just like his close friends, scandal seemed to follow Lasseter. In 1977, his private jet turned up in Las Vegas with Jimmy Chagra, a prominent drug trafficker, on board. Two years later, Chagra contracted hitman Charles Harrelson to assassinate federal judge John H. Wood Jr. in San Antonio, Texas. Several years later, in nineteen eighty four, Lasseter purchased a ski resort in a remote northern corner of New Mexico. According to journalists Denton and Morris, Lassiter was given free reign to use Bill Clinton's name commercially to help promote the isolated development. They continue. Undercover law enforcement agents later found the resort a center for drug running, what US Customs called a large controlled substance smuggling operation and large scale money laundering activity. While Lasseter held Arkansas Week at the resort with Governor Clinton's endorsement and entertained politicians from Santa Fe as well as Little Rock, local New Mexico sheriffs were hearing reports from Angel Fire reminiscent of Mina. Strange nighttime traffic, sightings of parachute drops, even hikers' accounts of a big black military-type cargo plane seeming to come out of nowhere and swooping low and almost silently over a deserted mountain meadow near the remote ski area. Rumors of drug trafficking, money laundering, powerful military connections, and the shadowy presence of military activity grew throughout the latter half of the 1980s and into the early 1990s. Attempts to investigate Clinton's role in these sorts of operations and more broadly in the Iran-Contra affair were scuttled by Clinton's confidants, who consistently denied he played a role in the scandal. According to the Wall Street Journal, former IRS investigator William Duncan teamed up with Arkansas State Police investigator Russell Welch in what became a decade-long battle to bring the matter to light. Yet, of the nine separate state and federal probes into the affair, all were shut down. Duncan would later say of the investigations, they were interfered with and covered up and the justice system was subverted. A 1992 memo from Duncan to high-ranking members of the Attorney General's staff notes that Duncan was instructed to remove all files concerning the MENA investigation from the Attorney General's office. The Attorney General, serving under George H.W. Bush at that time, was William Barr. As mentioned before, Barr had been a former CIA officer before then joining the agency-linked law firm of Shaw, Pittman, Potts, and Trowbridge reed alleged that one of the cia's point men in the arkansas operations was a man who claimed to be the general counsel for southern air transport and went by the name of robert johnson johnson seemed to give governor clinton his marching orders and was particularly incensed when bill's wayward brother roger clinton was busted in 1985 for peddling cocaine as previously mentioned roger's penchant for cocaine was one he shared directly with lassiter who testified that the two had frequently indulged in the drug together. Johnson reportedly told Clinton that he was Mr. Casey's fair-haired boy and that Arkansas had been the CIA's greatest asset. Johnson went on to deliver to Clinton the following message. Mr. Casey wanted me to pass on to you that unless you fuck up and do something stupid, you're number one on the short list for a shot at the job that you've always wanted. You and guys like you are the fathers of the new government. We are the new covenant. According to Terry Reed, who witnessed these happenings, he would later learn that Robert Johnson was none other than William Barr. Additional information about the Mina operations was provided in a deposition given by the controversial Iran contra whistleblower Richard Brenicky. His allegations, made in the summer of nineteen ninety one, were recently summarized in a lawsuit filed on behalf of Linda Ives, the mother of Kevin Ives. Kevin's body was found along with that of his friend Dan Henry on train tracks near Alexander, Arkansas, under exceedingly strange circumstances. According to this summary, Brennicky claimed that he had flown 10 to 12 flights of a C130 into Mena, Arkansas Airport and took guns and paramilitary forces from Mena to Panama. Cocaine was being flown back from Latin America to the Mena Airport, where it was dispersed to among others. Representatives from New York City Organized Crime Bank Building A small group of lawyers who worked under Joie would later become powerful actors in state and federal politics, and while at Rose, they were involved with the firm's strangest dealings. This group was composed of Webster Hubble, who would become associate attorney general under President Clinton, Clinton's future White House counsel, Vince Foster, and the soon-to-be First Lady, Hillary Rodham Clinton. This trio, like their boss, had an appetite for shady business dealings. All three were partners in a company called Midlife Investors, which had been set up in the early 1980s by E.F. Hutton. Hubble, Foster, and Rodham Clinton each kicked in $15,000 and named each other, rather than their spouses, as beneficiaries. Through midlife, the trio dumped money into companies being targeted by corporate takeover artists like James Goldsmith. Clinton, in particular, liked to haunt the corporate boardrooms and offices, often spending more time working on business affairs than the daily law work demanded by Rose. As L.J. Davis writes, She was only one of two Rose partners to act as a corporate director, serving at various times on the boards of four companies and earning $64,700 in 1991 from director's fees alone. Her 1991 salary from Rose was in the vicinity of $110,000. Her husband earned $35,000 and got to live in a free house. She was on the board of Walmart, a Rose client that Stevens had launched on the road to glory. Rodham Clinton also owned $80,000 worth of Walmart stock. She served Southern Development Bank Corp., a holding company created to give development loans in rural Arkansas, which, according to the Washington Post, paid Rose somewhere between $100,000 and $200,000 in fees. In 1989, she joined the board of TCBY Yogurt Company, which occupies the tallest building in Little Rock. TCBY then proceeded to pay Rose $750,000 for legal work during the next few years. Clinton's Development Machine In late 1984, Governor Bill Clinton unveiled an ambitious economic development plan for the state of Arkansas. It was a sterling example of Clinton's commitment to a pro-business vision of government and a direct foreshadowing of the sorts of economic policies that would become the norm during his time as U.S. president. As one Arkansas newspaper put it, Clinton's agenda would wed some state agencies, their activities, funds, and fund sources to efforts of the private sector. It included the creation of a science and technology hub to seed the birth of new firms, industries, and innovations in Arkansas, and a capital fund that would aggressively lend higher-risk capital to member banks. The centerpiece of Clinton's plan, however, was the transformation of Arkansas Housing Development Authority, established in the 1970s, into the Arkansas Development Finance Authority, ADFA. The transition was more than a cosmetic change. The mandate for the new agency was to do in the field of business development what it does in the field of housing development. A month later, in January, Clinton outlined how the ADFA would work. It would sell a wide range of tax-exempt revenue bonds to generate revenue. The money would then be passed to financial institutions for low-interest economic development loans. In
0: 1994, whistleblower and former Clinton associate Larry Nichols published a documentary titled The Clinton Chronicles. The Clinton Chronicles documented decades of the Clinton crime family's corruption as of the early 90s. If only we'd listened. Here's Nichols describing his experience at ADFA.
7: I first met Bill Clinton in the mid to late 70s. He was an up-and-coming politician. Uh, There were a group of us, Jim Guy Tucker, uh, Bill Clinton, Sheffield Nelson, and myself. And we kind of ran around and palled around with each other. It was from that point that I did a lot of projects for Bill from a marketing perspective. In 1988, I went to Bill and I said, I need uh, a job to kind of relax, mellow out. Bill Clinton and Betsy Wright, they suggested that I go to work for a place called the Arkansas Development Finance Authority. And they said my talents could really be used there. It was uh, the best kept secret in Arkansas. After about two weeks, I went to Wooten Epps, and I said, Wooten, I think I've got enough background on this that we can start marketing it. Now, what is the criteria for loans? He said, whoever Bill wants to get a loan. To go back, though, to that moment in time, I'd been there about a month, and I realized that I was in the epicenter of what I'd always heard about all my life. What most people have heard about is the machine. I was literally working, sitting in the middle of Bill Clinton's political machine. It was where he made payoffs, uh, where he repaid favors to people for campaign support. Um, I was in an interesting seat, and I knew it. We had a board meeting. Um, In that particular board meeting, I was sitting at the end of the table. James Brannion, who was chairman of the board at that time, was sitting at the head of the table. James Brannion stood up in a public restaurant. And he hollered at uh, the Beverly Enterprises guy, Bobby Stevens, and said, did you get the $50,000 campaign contribution from the client that that you're introducing the loan for? He said, not yet. He said, well, then hold up the loan till we get it. I stood up, went up to James, and I said, James, don't yell stuff like that. You don't need to be yelling it in a restaurant. That sounds real bad. He was just burly and arrogant. He said, who cares? Bill Clinton sold the concept of ADFA to the people of Arkansas as a vehicle for creating jobs and
8: assisting churches and schools. In reality, millions of taxpayer-guaranteed dollars were being channeled to Clinton's election campaigns, to his inner circle of friends, and to his wife Hillary's law firm. This may explain why
7: ADFA had been drafted in such a manner as to keep its decision-making procedures secret. If you needed a million dollars, you had to get your application handled by the Rose Law Firm, pay them $50,000. There were five other companies in the state of Arkansas that were actually more qualified in bond structuring and applications, but Rose Law Firm got them all. I started checking around and I kept asking, well, you know, one thing's bothering me to the comptroller, Bill Wilson, you know, how do people make payments on these loans? He looked at me and said, they don't. He thought I knew. Well, that blew my mind. And this is about two months in and it was getting tough then. So I started gathering the documents. After everybody left, I would stick around as if I were working on the annual report. That would give me access to all the documents and I make copies of them all. For about two months, I watched accounts accumulate money, and at the end of the month, they zero-balanced. They're laundering drug money. There were 100 million a month in cocaine coming in and out of Mean Arkansas. They had a problem, they were doing so much money in cocaine, 100 million, you you create a problem in a little state like Arkansas, how do you clean $100 million a month. ADFA until 1989 never banked in Arkansas. What they would do is they would ship the money down to Florida, a bank in Florida, which later would be connected to BCCI. They would ship money to a bank in Atlanta, Georgia, which, by the way, was later connected to BCCI. They'd ship to Citicorp in New York, which would send the money overseas. And there was an interesting one a bank in Chicago, that bank, by the way, is partially owned by Dan Rostenkowski. Dan Lasseter would get the bonds. He would become the broker for the bonds. He would transfer money back to ADFA. He never sold a bond. The money then would leave ADFA, go into one of the various banks for the specific bond loan, and they would zero it out. When they zeroed it out, they were giving it back to Lasseter, unless handling fees.
9: During the Laster investigation, we had numerous witnesses for the federal grand jury, uh, had extensive uh, testimony. Uh, people that was connected with Laster and drug use and everything else. Uh, his cocaine uh, use become used as a tool for sexual favors and also for uh, uh, business uh, uh, deals that influenced people, uh, and that's when. Uh, Mr. Lasseter become quite flamboyant with his cocaine use and then ultimately led to his arrest and conviction.
7: Dan Lasseter, who was the best friend of Bill Clinton, who went to jail with Roger Clinton for cocaine. And by the way, let me explain something. He didn't sell cocaine. No, they were giving it away. Huge piles of cocaine in his office. Ashtray upon ashtray full at the parties and they would give it to young girls That's sick I mean they were given a highly addictive drug to young girls One particular
9: one comes to mind is a 14 year old cheerleader uh, out of North Little Rock uh, she was uh, uh, a virgin and ultimately he ended up uh, sent her to a physician of his. Uh, the physician put her on birth control pills. Um, he used cocaine in order to... Uh, to uh, ultimately, she lost her virginity, and she got addicted to cocaine. And the last I heard of her, when we had her subpoenaed back to the federal grand jury, uh, she was a hooker in Lake Tahoe.
7: Dan Laster contracted to launder the money. In addition to his contract to launder the money and the system that he and Bill Clinton had set up to do it, probably what he did is he took advantage of some of the cocaine. That's why he could give it away. Shoot, you have 100 million a month in cocaine. They wouldn't care if you took a bucket full a day.
9: After Laster was indicted, I started to uh, uh, receive quite a bit of harassment from from my own department, Arkansas State Police, and I knew the reason behind it because uh, the affiliation with the state police and the governor's office uh, with Dan Laster and his uh, business associates.
10: Mr. Laster's cocaine involvement at times was very heavy. Then at times he was very cool, calm, mediocre. He didn't. He was, he was very careful, as all of them have been, for quite
11: some time.
7: Once he was convicted, he went to a minimum security prison, a holiday hotel, we call them. He spent, I think it was six to eight months, and he got out, unbeknownst to anybody. Bill Clinton, the day after he got out, granted him a full and complete pardon. So if you think he's tough on crime, think about a man that pardons a man that gives cocaine to kids
12: fear of violence is robbing our children of their future. We must take away that fear and give them hope. We must give Alicia and all our children back their childhood. Working together,
7: we can. Do something now. Call 1-800-WE-PREVENT. Your president, president of the United States, not only was a part of a system that was laundering millions of cocaine dollars, your president signed off on it. He can't deny that he did. You see, because of ADPA, there's one little catch: every loan at ADVA, made, Bill Clinton himself had to sign off on it. More than Bill Clinton, you better identify the people in the loop of the drug running. You better identify the people in the loop for money laundering. And what you'll find there is those people go straight to Washington.
0: The point to highlight from Webb's and Nichols reporting is that where there's smoke, there's fire. The Clintons' ties to intelligence agencies, to organized crime, and to profiteering from money laundering and drug smuggling started in the Arkansas days. This racketeering only intensified as the Clintons' political power grew. One eyewitness to the Clintons' corruption in Arkansas has been testifying to the truth of these allegations for 35 years. Kathy O'Brien. Kathy O'Brien, MKUltra, and Operation Paperclip. For those who are unfamiliar with CIA Project MK Ultra, Kathy O'Brien's story is almost impossible to believe. Yet the more I've researched Kathy's story and her testimony over the past 35 years, as well as that of others knowledgeable about human trafficking and mind control, the more I believe her. I've come to recognize her story as the smoking gun that can help to bring down the deep state once and for all. In 1957, Kathy was born into a multi-generational incest family in Michigan. Her father eventually sold her into sex slavery as part of the CIA's MK Ultra program, MK standing for mind control. Kathy was used as a mind control sex slave for several decades. During captivity, she gave birth to her daughter, Kelly, who, al- who was also victimized in the MK Ultra Project Monarch program. Both Kathy and her daughter, Kelly, were rescued by intelligence agency insider Mark Phillips in 1988. Kathy and Mark provided testimony for the U.S. Congress in 1995, which was censored for so-called reasons of national security. Unsurprisingly, the censors were the same perpetrators against whom they were testifying. Still, Mark and Kathy were able to release their stories in two books, Transformation of America and Access Denied for Reasons of National Security. Officially, MK Ultra and the CIA's mind control experiment stopped in 1973, and details were brought to the public attention in 1975 as part of the Church Committee hearings. The blame was conveniently placed on scapegoat-of-the-day Sidney Gottlieb and the depths of the project were swept under the rug. Unofficially, these projects never stopped. Rather, the CIA's work in psychological warfare, ritualistic abuse as a form of mind control, and the development of psychotronic weapons escalated over the subsequent decades. Here's Kathy explaining her story in a 2007 interview.
3: There's a criminal faction of the U.S. government that was actively involved in MK-Ultra mind control. When the nazi and fascist scientists were brought into the United States, it was as though, you know, we didn't win the war um, against Nazi Germany. Instead, we just simply transferred it over here, and it was being used on the, the population, either in a form of mass mind control, which is very prevalent today, through social engineering and manipulation through the medias and um, information control, um, which are all very strong forms of mass mind control, or it can be the kind of absolute, total robotic mind control that I experienced. Right. And there was a local politician at the time that was actually sanctioning um, the kind of abuse that I was going through. My father's sexual abuse of me had extended into child pornography, and he was selling the child pornography through the local Michigan Mafia child pornography ring. He um, only had a sixth grade education, earned his his living as a worm digger, and so he was supplementing the family income with the proceeds from child pornography of me. Well, This local politician knew that any child who was so abused is to be used in pornography would be suffering from this dissociative identity disorder which made me a prime candidate or a chosen one for MK Ultra Mind Control. It was so well known that with that kind of compartmentalization that would leave the subconscious mind open to be easily led. The subconscious mind doesn't have any ability to reason, any ability to consciously comprehend, any ability to question or to do anything other than exactly what it is told to do. So, um, this local politician approached my father and told him that he could have immunity from prosecution if he would agree to sell me into MK Ultra Mind Control. And my father thought that was great. He thought, well, this is wonderful. The government condones child abuse. So, for what
11: purpose did they want to have you sold into MKUltra Mind
3: Control? There's various reasons why they were targeting children like myself. Many of them were being targeted for military special forces. Many were being targeted for the intelligence community. And in my case that was um, the direction that I was used eventually throughout my Mind Control victimization. I was used on a White House Pentagon level. Because I had been sexually abused and my sexuality was heightened, that was a focus of the abuse, where I would have um, be used sexually with various politicians and um, deliver government secrets and uh, at a time like that, because they believed what better place to store government secrets than in the mind of someone who can't think to bring these these memories to mind to tell somebody. They thought it was a good place to store secrets. Because another function, uh, automatic function of the brain when it is exposed to trauma is it photographically records events surrounding trauma. So there's like a photographic memory within this little compartment Even though it can't be remembered over here and thought to be brought to mind, there's still nevertheless a photographic memory within that compartment. And that's where the government secrets were stored.
11: Well, toward what end, just so I'm clear on this, they would store secrets to be used toward what end? What was the The
3: various operations that I would be used in throughout my victimization, because this particular politician went on to become the unelected president of the United States, and that's Gerald Ford. And that was the Michigan politician. That, yeah, that he was just a local politician at into, the time, okay. went, be, be, yeah. went into state politics and became the unelected president of the United States. Seemingly bizarre set of circumstances, but it was so also natural to my experience and um, my existence under mind control.
0: The corruption that O'Brien exposed is so paradigm shattering, it's easy to dismiss offhand. But as more information about this cabal has come to light, her story has been supported time and time again. And as O'Brien just highlighted with her allegations against former Republican President Gerald Ford, the deep state is not a Republican or Democratic organization. The fight is not right versus left. The fight is absolute corruption versus individual freedom, plain and simple. While Kathy's story is unique in terms of the length of her enslavement in MKUltra, her exposure to the highest levels of corruption, and her ability to recall events while under trauma-based mind control. Her experience is far from an isolated event. Here is a montage of Kathy's rescuer, Mark Phillips, and Mind Control Project survivors, Claudia Mullen, Christy Allen, Annek Lucas, and Christine Nicola. What has
13: happened to Kathy O'Brien is happening all around the world.
1: I was exploited unwittingly for nearly three
5: decades of my life. We were sold to the federal government by our father and his priesthood and military
3: leaders. I was being trained to be a sex slave for the elite.
5: My family were used as entertainers, child pilots in wars, medics, special messengers, high-priced call girls, presidential models, sports figures, and international spies.
1: There were countless other children in my same situation. Most of the children there were babies and toddlers.
3: I was strapped down in a sort of lab-like setting.
14: These experiments were performed on me in conjunction with mind control techniques and drugs. The deliberate
11: dissociating through trauma.
5: Dissociation also serves the purposes of the occult because the children have no day-to-day memories
1: of the atrocities. Although the process of recalling these atrocities is not an easy one, nor is it without some danger to myself and my family. I feel the risk is worth taking. Since sharing
5: it, I've lost a 20 year singing career,
1: lots of money, my health and my home. All these atrocities did occur to me and to countless other children and all under the guise of defending our country. These psychopaths at the top believe they'll create
5: a satanic order that will rule the world. At a high level of the US government, there was support of this kind of thing with Operation Bluebird, Paperclip, Mockingbird, and of course, MK Ultra, still going on today.
0: Christy Allen just mentioned CIA Operation Paperclip. Kathy O'Brien alluded to this earlier when she referenced how Nazi and fascist scientists were brought into the United States and how we didn't win the war. This presents an extremely uncomfortable reality which we must nevertheless consider. Americans have been taught a watered-down version of how geopolitics developed following World War II, that the fascists of the Axis Empire were defeated by the good guys of the Allied powers. Is it possible that the fascists didn't lose the war? They simply went underground, using infiltration and subversion to infest the so-called democracies of the West. Could we today be living in the Fourth Reich? Here's constitutional attorney Daniel Sheehan discussing how certain corrupt American OSS intelligence agents like Alan Dulles, Henry Kissinger, and Theodore Shackley colluded with corrupt Nazi SS intelligence leaders like Heinrich Himmler and Reinhard Galen to infiltrate sovereign governments as part of the cabal's long-term plan for one world government, the New World Order, and that this coalescence of corruption served as the foundation for the CIA, the interlocking spiderweb of secret police agencies worldwide, and their puppet public officials rotting governments from within.
12: When, in fact, the, uh, the uh, uh, German army surrendered to the United States uh, and the Allies, uh, Reinhard Galen, the chief of the anti-Soviet and anti-eastern bloc intelligence, came down out of the Bavarian Mountains dressed in a uniform of an American private and turned himself in to the 101st Counterintelligence Corps of the United States Army uh, and revealed the fact that he was Reinhard Galen, the major general in charge of the anti-Soviet and anti-eastern bloc intelligence for the Third Reich, And he made an offer to them that if they would release him and a hundred of his hand-picked assistants in the anti-Soviet division of the Third Reich, he would agree to turn himself into them and he would work for them. If they would take all of their names off the Nuremberg uh, War Crimes Tribunal and put him in charge of the post-war intelligence for Germany. Uh, And he was assigned two German-American translators from the 101st Counterintelligence Corps. And these two were Theodore G. Shackley and Henry Kissinger. And they served as the translators for Reinhard Galen in his initial uh, offerings that he was making to the OSS at that time, uh, offering to come into their service against the Soviet Union and the communists throughout Europe if they would release him and his hundred men Uh, from any responsibility for their actions taken during World War II. And Reinhard Galen then took uh, Theodore G. Shackley with him and was brought all the way from Germany to the United States and uh, put in residence at a place called Fort Hunt outside of Washington, D.C., where he spent three weeks negotiating with the top officials of the OSS uh, and the elite bankers and uh, and lawyers for this elite, uh, making a bargain that he would run the anti-Soviet intelligence uh, for the Allied powers after World War II if they would agree to not only take him and his hundred men off the Nuremberg War Tribunals, but actually put them in charge of the intelligence services of the new western half of Germany at the end of World War II. But he was, would not reveal to any of them the content of their files. And he would not turn over the files to them they were going to remain in possession of the files, Galen and his men, and they would administer this entire anti-Soviet intelligence operation for the Western allies. Uh, And that agreement was struck uh, at Fort Hunt uh, at the end, in the closing months of, uh, after the Germans uh, had surrendered, but while the Japanese were still actively engaged in war against the United States. Also, uh, the OSS uh, undertook a program to reach out to try to take into custody and keep from falling into the hands of the Russian advancing forces on the Eastern Front all of the rocket scientists for Germany. Because as you may have heard, the Germans were engaged in this aggressive program of developing rockets uh, that could be launched from Germany to firebomb uh, England, uh, and uh, and they were developing major, sophisticated uh, missiles uh, at the end of toward the end of World War II, uh, uh, and they they had a a program, a classified program of of the OSS to recruit as many uh, German rocket scientists as they could. And it was it was uh, codenamed Operation Paperclip. There was a second program, in addition to Operation Paperclip, that was codenamed Operation Overcast. And pursuant to this uh, classified program, they the OSS forces engaged in an aggressive campaign to seek out to identify and seek out all of the Third Reich's uh, anti-communist agents everywhere, not just, not just with Reinhard Galen and his hundred men who were going to stay operational in his office, uh, but they, they took into, uh, into custody uh, as many of the, the covert operations people as they could of the German Third Reich of the fascist Nazis and basically brought them into the uh, under the auspices of the OSS and basically deputized them as the political operatives uh, of the anti communist campaign that they were planning to mount at the end of World War II. And so, that uh, you, you got under Operation Overcast, you got a lot of the ideologues and the political uh, fascists of the Third Reich that were were given protection and taken into the protective custody of the OSS and actually given false names, new names, and false passports, et cetera, and ensconced all throughout Europe and even taken into the United States. Now, this is over and above those that were allowed and facilitated to escape into South America these are people that were actually put into place all throughout Europe uh, in, in a group that they called the Galatios, uh, which is the, uh, from the Latin root of the sword. That they were, they were the so-called stay-behinds. These were the people that were put into place by the American uh, OSS uh, all throughout Europe, and they were, they were allowed to run for offices as mayors and uh, in town council people uh, put in charge of major businesses and corporations, et cetera, all under false names in disguising their former Nazi uh, Party membership. In
0: 1995, Kathy O'Brien had the opportunity to testify in front of the U.S. Congressional Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence Oversight. The 1947 National Security Act was invoked to censor her testimony. The NSA Act of 1947 crafted by corrupt bureaucrats during Truman's presidency, also established the CIA. See how these dark spiderwebs connect? Here's what Kathy had to say about her direct experience with the Clintons during her time under MKUltra mind control.
15: An enormous quantity of cocaine had been flown in on one of these operations and that was to deliver it into the neighboring state of Arkansas. By that time, Bill Clinton's drug operation was in full swing. He was governor of Arkansas... And I delivered this cocaine to a remote airport in Washita Forest, which I've since identified as Mena Airport. I also delivered a little packet of information and a small quantity of cocaine, a personal stash from J. Bennett Johnston to Bill Clinton. I delivered it to Bill Clinton and he cut out two lines of the coke and he did inhale. <laughs> wasn't the only time I saw Bill Clinton using cocaine. My sexual experience with Bill Clinton was extremely limited in spite of the fact that I was a sex slave. It was my experience that Bill Clinton is bisexual, leaning far more towards a homosexual end. All I've ever seen him involved in was the homosexual activity um, with very limited experience with him myself. Whereas my experience was much more uh, prevalent with Hillary Clinton, because Hillary is also uh, bisexual, leaning more towards a homosexual end, and it was she who accessed my sex programming to fulfill her perversions. people have all kinds of belief systems and I'm sure each and every one of you has various and different belief systems as well. Regardless of what your belief system is, it is imperative that you know that these criminals are people. They are within our realm to affect. They need to be held accountable for their actions and their crimes against humanity. It was my experience that in, in 1984, there was a, a, there's a CIA trauma-based um, near-death trauma center that's located in Lampy, Missouri. It's called the Swiss Villa Amphitheater. And they'd bring certain involved country music acts in to bring large quantities of cocaine or or bring the cocaine out for distribution. Because Lampy, Missouri is just across the Arkansas line and is very much a part of Bill Clinton's cocaine operation. And it was in full swing at that time. It's also interesting to note that this Lampie, Missouri operation is where the country music industry was more conveniently relocated, you know, right there in Branson. So that it would be closer to Clinton's cocaine operations. Lampie, Missouri was a place where I heard George Bush and Bill Clinton talking, where from, from the point of view I had they certainly were friends and they didn't recognize any party lines between them, that's something for the, you know, a smoke and mirrors illusion for the public. It's not something they adhere to because they had exactly the same agenda and that was for bringing in this new world order. I heard George Bush talking at that time, he was talking to, to Bill Clinton, and, and I've since photographically recorded it and, and wrote it verbatim in our book, that when the American people became disillusioned with Republicans leading them into the new world order, that Bill Clinton as a Democrat was going to be put into the office of president. This was decided in 1984. Actually, I'd heard about it even prior to that. But that... As of 1984, they were already discussing it as an absolute fact. It was also discussed in the groundwork for NAFTA that by the time George Bush went into the office of president, that Salinas was going to become president of Mexico and they together would be bringing in the um, NAFTA, which was the beginning of, of New World Order Controls.
0: In her first book, Transformation of America, published in 1995, O'Brien detailed her sexual assault and enslavement by Hillary Clinton.
10: Chapter 14. Clinton Coke Lines I met up with Bill Clinton again in 1982 at a county fair in Berryville, Arkansas. Alex Houston was entertaining there due to the close proximity of the CIA near-death trauma center, a.k.a. slave conditioning and programming camp, and Drug Distribution Point at Swiss Villa in Lampy, Missouri. I had just endured intense physical and psychological trauma and programming. Clinton was campaigning for governor and was backstage with Hillary and Chelsea while waiting to make a speech. Clinton stood in the afternoon sun with his arms crossed, talking to Houston about him and his people, CIA operatives, being booked into specific areas for the dual purpose of entertaining and carrying out specific covert drug operations. From my perspective, those who were actively laying the groundwork for implementing the New World Order through mind-conditioning of the masses made no distinction between Democratic and Republican parties. Their aspirations were international in proportion, not American. Members were often drawn from, among other elitist groups, the Council on Foreign Relations. Like George Bush, Bill Clinton was an active member of the CFR, as well as a Yale Skull and Bones graduate. Based on numerous conversations I overheard, Clinton was being groomed and prepared to fill the role of president under the guise of Democratic in the event that the American people became discouraged with Republican leaders. This was further evidenced by the extent of Clinton's New World Order knowledge and professed loyalties. Clinton understood that I had just been through hell and lampy and took it all in stride as he focused on his speech. He not only was well aware of the mind-controlled tortures and criminal covert activities proliferating in Arkansas and the neighboring state of Missouri, but he condoned them. Just as there are no partisan preferences in this world-dominance effort, neither are there any strong individual state considerations or boundaries, either. I knew from experience that Clinton's Arkansas criminal covert operations messed with the Lampy, Missouri Center, where he routinely tended business and claimed to vacation staying in the compound's resort villas. Immediately following the Swiss Villa incident, Houston was scheduled as usual to perform at the county fair in Berryville, Arkansas. There, Houston and I had been visiting with longtime Clinton friend and supporter H.B. Gibson when he parted company to attend a private meeting at the mansion of Clinton's bisexual friend and supporter, Bill Hall. Hall had reportedly made his fortune in the prefabricated long-home business, and the Clintons were staying in a guest villa patterned after those at Swiss Villa. Hillary had taken toddler Chelsea to the villa while Clinton and his aide bodyguard attended the meeting. Tommy Overstreet was also in attendance, as this directly coincided with the recent Lampy meeting. We all sat in Hall's sunken living room on two Couches facing each other with a black mirror coffee table between us. All had cut numerous lines of cocaine on the table, and everyone present, including Bill Clinton, was inhaling it through $50 bills rolled into straws. The conversation ranged from CIA, drugs, and politics to the Swiss Villa Amphitheater and country music. At the time, a major effort was underway to move Nashville, Tennessee's country music industry to the Lampy area. It has since literally moved to nearby Branson. In closer proximity to the CIA cocaine operations that leached the industry. Tommy Overstreet was attempting to convince Hall, who was obviously no stranger to cocaine business, to join the high-level CIA cocaine operation that was funding covert activity. They discussed the possibility of Hall transporting cocaine from Berryville, Arkansas, to Nashville, Tennessee, to be in on the ground level of what would soon be one of the largest and most prolific CIA cocaine operations, the Branson, Missouri country music industry. By enlisting now, the contacts and customers that Hall would procure could politically and financially bolster him for life. Additionally, Overstreet discussed the viability of using Hall's own company trucks to transport the drug throughout Atlanta, Georgia, Louisville, Kentucky, and Jacksonville, Florida as well as Nashville, Tennessee, and Lampy, Missouri. These key CIA cocaine routes coincided with Hall's established truck routes, according to the insiders present at the meeting. Hall was being offered the opportunity of a lifetime, as his role would also include laundering money through his business to fund the black budget covert operations. Hall appeared nervous and skeptical, and Clinton and Overstreet attempted to maintain a light atmosphere by joking that Hall could change the name of his trucking line to Clinton Coke lines. Hall was not convinced and began to raise questions as to the longevity of the operation and how he was going to protect himself. Although Hall was very adept at the cocaine business, he voiced concern that he found it easier to trust those who were not with the CIA operations than he did U.S. government-protected participants. Clinton reassured him that it was Reagan's operation, but Hall was concerned that some faction of the government would shut it down like a sting operation without warning and leave him literally holding the bag. Houston laughed and explained that no one was going to cut it, the drug business, off. He assured them that it was far too lucrative and that there would always be a market for drugs, a market controlled by those criminals implementing their new world order. Clinton added to what Houston said, talking in local colloquialisms. Bottom line is, "'We've got control of the drug industry. "'Therefore, you've got control of them, the suppliers and buyers. "'You control the guy underneath you, and Uncle Sam has you covered. "'What have you got to lose? "'No risk? "'No one's going to hang you out to dry. "'And whatever spills off the truck as it passes through,' "'he laughed and snorted another line of coke. "'You get to clean up.' "'Paul smiled at his friend, which was apparently interpreted as consent. "'Clinton motioned for his aide to get his ledger.' Overstreet began pulling out his paperwork, and Hall neatly cleared the table of the remaining coke lines. Clinton gestured to me and told Houston, Get her out of here. Houston didn't move and laughed. She's a presidential model. She's kept secrets bigger than yours. Clinton responded, I don't care. Get her the fuck out of here. Hall's wife led me away and locked me in a back bedroom. After an indeterminate period of time, I heard her telephone Hillary at the guest villa. She then drove me up the mountain through the dark to meet with Hillary. Although I had previously met Hillary, we had very little to say to each other, particularly since I was still dazed and tranced from the tortures I had endured at the CIA near-death trauma center in Lampy. Hillary knew I was a mind-control slave and, like Bill Clinton, just took it in stride as a normal part of life in politics. Hillary was fully clothed and stretched out on the bed sleeping when Hall's wife and I arrived. Hillary, I brought you something you'll really enjoy kind of an unexpected surprise bill ordered her out of the meeting and took her to my bedroom and made an interesting discovery she is literally a two-faced referring to my vaginal mutilation carving bitch Hmm? hillary opened her eyes and sleepily roused herself show me all's wife ordered me to take my clothes off while hillary watched is she clean hillary asked meaning disease free of course she's birds she responded continuing the conversation as though i were not there Plus, I heard Houston say something about her being a presidential model. Whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. It means she's clean, Hillary said matter-of-factly as she stood up. I was not capable of giving thought to such things back then, but I'm aware in retrospect that all presidential model slaves I knew seemed to have an immunity to social diseases. It was a well-known fact in the circles I was sexually passed around in that government-level mind-controlled sex slaves were clean, to the degree that none of my abusers took precautions such as wearing condoms. Paul's wife patted the bed and instructed me to display the mutilation. Hilary exclaimed, "'God!' and immediately began performing oral sex on me. Apparently aroused by the carving in my vagina, Hilary stood up and quickly peeled out of her matronly nylon panties and pantyhose. Uninhibited, despite a long day in the hot sun, she gasped, "'Eat me, oh God, eat me now!' I had no choice but to comply with her orders and Bill Hall's wife made no move to join me in my distasteful task. Hillary had resumed, examining my hideous mutilation and performing oral sex on me when Bill Clinton walked in. Hillary lifted her head to ask, how'd it go? Clinton appeared totally unaffected by what he walked into, tossed his jacket on a chair, and said, it's official. I'm exhausted. I'm going to bed. I put my clothes on as ordered, and Hall's wife drove me back down to the mansion where Houston was waiting for me. The meeting apparently had been a success. I heard discussions throughout the remaining years between Houston, his agent, Reggie McLaughlin, and Loretta Lynn's handler, Ken Riley, pertaining to Hall's successful branch of the CIA cocaine operation emanating from Arkansas. In O'Brien's
0: recounting of her assault by Hillary Clinton, she several times mentioned her vagina mutilation, by which Clinton was aroused. This leads us to one of the strangest and hardest to understand components of this cabal, their obsession with the occult. The next section explores Blood Ritual, Baphomet, and a man with a soul as evil and ridiculous as his eyebrows, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino. Blood Ritual, Baphomet, and Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino. In 1773, evidence indicates Meyer Amschel Rothschild gathered the heads of Europe's most powerful moneylenders and crime families. Together they formed the World Revolutionary Movement, WRM, a multi-generational plan for totalitarian control, one-world government, and enslavement of the masses. Three years later, Rothschild joined with the depraved Adam Weishaupt and Jacob Frank, and these three stooges formed the Bavarian Illuminati. This secret society has subsequently infiltrated the world's most powerful institutions using subversion, deception, cunning, and a brotherhood of mutual blackmail. This society and the Rothschild family are widely suspected to sit atop the organization known today as the Deep State and the New World Order. Essential to this cabal's plan has been the miseducation and misinformation of the people. For example, the WRM's long-range plan laid out the following points. Number 17, systematic deception. He, Rothschild, reasoned that by using such words as freedom and liberty— the masses could be stirred up to such a pitch of patriotic fervor that they could be made to fight even against the laws of God and nature. He added, and for this reason, after we obtain control, the very name of God will be erased from the lexicon of life. Number 24, corruption of youth. The importance of capturing the interest of youth was emphasized with the admonition that our agenters should infiltrate into all classes and levels of society and government for the purpose of fooling, bemusing, and corrupting the younger members of society by teaching them theories and principles we know to be false. The Illuminati executed these principles by manipulating a scientific consensus that refutes the idea of sacred science that denounces the esoteric wisdom of antiquity, fields including astrology, sound technology, numerology, sacred geometry, alchemy, anti-gravity, and epigenetics. While doing so, they have inverted the power of natural law to fulfill their own selfish desires. The Illuminati death cult engages in all forms of absolute corruption and absolute depravity. This includes child sacrifice, cannibalism, dark entity worship, black magic, blood ritual, and adrenochrome harvesting. Blood ritual. Now, once you mention elites, human trafficking, ritualistic abuse, and or the occult, you immediately run the risk of being dismissed as a QAnon conspiracy theorist. Like I said earlier, I still have no clue what QAnon is, but I do know that unfortunately, child sacrifice and blood ritual have been practiced by the ruling class of society for millennia, up to and including present day. And while I can't attest whether or not dark non-human forces exist, the members of this death cult absolutely behave as if they do, willingly engaging in disgusting forms of satanic ritualistic abuse. Here's author and researcher of esoteric wisdom, Manly P. Hall, in his seminal book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages. Hall's book was originally published in 1928, 89 years before the first Q-drop. This is what he had to say about the worship of dark entities and the age-old practice of black magic. Quote, the theory and practice of black magic. Some understanding of the intricate theory and practice of ceremonial magic may be derived from a brief consideration of its underlying premises. First, the visible universe has an invisible counterpart, the higher planes of which are peopled by good and beautiful spirits. The lower planes, dark and foreboding, are the habitation of evil spirits and demons under the leadership of the fallen angel and his ten princes. Second, by means of the secret processes of ceremonial magic, it is possible to contact these invisible creatures and gain their help in some human undertaking. Good spirits willingly lend their assistance to any worthy enterprise, but the evil spirits serve only those who live to pervert and destroy. Third, it is possible to make contracts with spirits whereby the magician becomes, for a stipulated time, the master of an elemental being. Fourth, true black magic is performed with the aid of a demoniacal spirit who serves the sorcerer for the length of his earthly life, with the understanding that after death, the magician shall become the servant of his own demon. For this reason, a black magician will go to inconceivable ends to prolong his physical life since there is nothing for him beyond the grave. The most dangerous form of black magic is the scientific perversion of occult power for the gratification of personal desire. Its less complex and more universal form is human selfishness, for selfishness is the fundamental cause of all worldly evil. A man will barter his eternal soul for temporal power and down through the ages, a mysterious process has been evolved, which actually enables him to make this exchange. In its various branches, the black art includes nearly all forms of ceremonial magic, necromancy, witchcraft, sorcery, and vampirism. And vampirism. Under the same general heading are also included mesmerism and hypnotism, except when used solely for medical purposes, and even then there is an element of risk for all concerned. The practice of magic, either white or black, depends upon the ability of the adept to control the universal life force, that which Eliphas Levi calls the great magical agent or the astral light. By the manipulation of this fluidic essence, the phenomena of transcendentalism are produced. The famous hermaphroditic Baphomet, goat of Mendez, was a composite creature formulated to symbolize this astral light. End quote. And on Substack, I've included an image of Baphomet from Manly P. Hall's book. One of the most depraved leaders of MKUltra and the occult sciences is Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino. Aquino was an Army Intelligence, DIA and NSA officer, fifth-generational psychological warfare expert, and founder of the Satanic Temple of Set. Aquino allegedly died in 2020. Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino. Here's Kathy O'Brien's description of her history with Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino.
10: When Houston became my appointed mind-control handler in 1980, Burt's influence on my mind boosted Houston's entertainment career. His travels had expanded to accommodate covert drug and money-laundering operations across the U.S., in Mexico, in Canada, and throughout the Caribbean. Houston had, and has, a great deal of no-show money, but I was never permitted access to it. Poverty was one more means of control I endured as slaves like myself were not afforded the freedoms that having money allows. When I was working three menial jobs during college, all of my money was taken from me by by my parents. All money earned by Cox's Cocaine and Body Parts Enterprises was reinvested in the Covenant drugs, leaving us dependent on charities for our basic necessities. With Houston, I had to earn every penny I spent on groceries, And necessities over and over again, which made earning my keep a deliberately impossible cycle. This kept me financially dependent and further hindered my ability to escape, even if I had known enough to attempt it. My innate protective maternal instincts as a mother may have been accentuated due to my past unsuccessful attempts to protect my brothers and sisters. I now had two sisters. It was my desperate need to keep Kelly safe that drove me to the point of fight or flight when I was transferred to Houston. I had long ago lost my ability to fight, but my new maternal instincts compelled me to flight. I did all I could to save Kelly and myself from Houston and her fate in Project Monarch. Since I had no ability to reason was amnesic, I fled to my parents' new house in affluent Grand Haven, Michigan. I had no concept of what I was running from or to. I arrived with my baby daughter in my arms, the tattered clothes on my back, and what few donated belongings I had acquired for Kelly. Within a few days, my parents received and followed Senator Byrd's instructions and turned me back over to Houston, who in turn sent me back to Louisiana for further conditioning. After three more months of intense non-stop tortures by Cox, i could not think to follow maternal instincts and barely knew my own name i had no idea how old i was where i was how long i'd been there and what had happened to kelly during that time kelly's own testimony and current program polyfragmented multiple personality dissociative identity disorder reflects the high tech sophisticated conditioning and torturous trauma she endured during this and numerous ensuing times that we were separated when I was returned to Houston as orchestrated by Bird, my brain contained a new series of compartments ready to be programmed and led intensive mind control behavior programming began at once, and Houston ensured that I was taken to my appointed destinations under the guise of his travels in the country music industry in the early nineteen eighties. My bass programming was instilled at Fort Campbell, Kentucky by U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino. Aquino holds a top-secret clearance in the Defense Intelligence Agency's Psychological Warfare Division, PSYOPs. He is a professed neo-Nazi, the founder of the Himmler-inspired Satanic Temple Asset, and has been charged with child ritual and sexual abuse at the Presidio Daycare in San Francisco, California. But, like my father and Cox, Aquino remains above the law, While he continues to traumatize and program CIA destined young minds in a quest to reportedly create the superior race of Project Monarch mind controlled slaves. I quickly learned that Aquino did not adhere to his profoundly professed occult superstition any more than I did. His satanic power was in the form of numerous variations of high voltage stun guns, which he used on me regularly. Although Aquino used occultism, blood trauma as a trauma base, his programming was high-tech and clean, not muddled in a proverbial witch's brew of ignorance. He quickly dispelled the cock's influence and began programming me according to Bird's specifications as his own little witch for sadistic sex, covert CIA drug muling, blackmail, and prostitution operations. During the three months I was back with Cox, a muscle in my upper vaginal wall was cut and dropped in preparation for Houston to flush-carve a hideous witch's face for Senator Bird's perversion. Aquino provided the ancient instructions on how to mutilate me, and Houston used silver nitrate and hot exacto knives to carve the details of the face without any form of anesthesia. By flexing the muscle downward, the face protruded out of my vagina. Not only did this surgery give Bird a vagina suited to his minute, underdeveloped penis, it also provided an equitable curiosity to be displayed over and over again in both commercial and non-commercial pornography and prostitution.
0: In the footnote, O'Brien highlights that the witch's face has also been referred to as that of a Baphomet and Jesuit monk. The worship of Baphomet is a common theme amongst the Illuminati death cult O'Brien's allegations against Aquino are far from unique. Here's a section on Aquino from the documentary Out of Shadows.
16: So the biggest surge with this occult-type material took place in the late 60s and the early 70s with movies like The Exorcist, Amityville Horror, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, and Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. And coincidentally, this same time period... It parallels the rise of the Church of Satan in Los Angeles, and it was founded by a guy named Anton LaVey.
13: When I was a police officer, uh, we had cases of satanic cults right in Arlington, Virginia. Those have been around for decades. They're in the high schools, they're in the colleges, they're in the government, and they're in Hollywood.
16: I got to meet people like Sammy Davis and that kind of shit. Sammy told me he worshipped the devil. Sammy was like, you know, Satan is as powerful as God. And I was like, what the f-? What are you talking about? He says, "Why do you think there's so much anger in the world and you know, killing and murder and uh, Satan?" And he saw my reaction to it, and he kind of lightened up on it. Buddy. And he was like, "The dance of this dark, and he uh, the candles
17: on the table and Sammy's face over the candle. You know, Satan is as powerful as God."
18: From our point of view, it really makes no difference whether you pray to a father god or to a mother goddess or to an entire gaggle of gods and goddesses. Michael Aquino was a high level officer in the National
13: Security Agency. Uh, He was and is, you'll see him today, a practicing Satanist. Uh, He created the Satanic Temple of Set which he still runs. He was a high-level NSA officer. He's a member of the association, I used to be in uh, the Association of Former Intelligence Officers, AFIO. He's a member of that. He's plugged in big time to the intelligence uh, community. And he wrote a paper called Mind War. And Mind War was about uh, psychological operations against, po- against populations, including uh, the American, the domestic population, using uh, Satanist techniques and
19: tools. Aquino was first involved in NK Ultra operations during the Vietnam War as part of the Phoenix program.
20: Well, first I've been involved in intelligence and psychological operations for about 40 years uh, in all levels of it and across the intelligence community.
1: You are a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army? Correct. Now, And how does the Army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set?
18: The Army has known about my religion for um, the entire span of my army career, which began in 1968, Mm -hmm. the army has paid uh, very little attention to it, the same as it would to anybody who is, say, a a follower of Hinduism or of um, Buddhism or any other slightly unusual religion today.
13: He was uh, occupied a position at the Presidio which was a, a training facility for the U.S. government. Uh, and it was uncovered that he was running a pedophile ring. I think 50 kids came out and fingered him as the guy that had uh, done sexual acts on them as children. It went to trial. Uh, he, he walked from the trial. Um Uh, successfully, because he had a good attorney, despite the fact that there were multiple witnesses that said Aquino, through satanic rituals, had abused them as children. There's no question that he's a practicing Satanist. Just watch any one of his interviews.
18: On this altar is uh, one of a number of daggers, which we may use in our rituals. This one happened to belong to the commanding general of the most elite unit of Germany's infamous SS was concerned with black magic and occultism research in general anything that it could find that had to do with the uh, origins of the human race destiny of humanity
21: the perverted view of the occult held by heinrich himmler was of an evil magic
18: that could help create a new master race weevilsburg castle is where he performed his ceremonies i have been to the weevilsburg which still preserves heinrich himmler's ritual chambers to this day, and have conducted a black magical ritual in the so-called Hall of the Dead, beneath the Veilsberg. This particular dagger is inscribed to our comrade in the Leibsenarte Theodor Wisch, Brigadefuhrer, a major general in the Waffen SS. And on its blade, it bears the inscription, Mein Era Heist
0: Troy or my honor shall be known by my faithfulness. Sean Stone further explores Aquino's story in his documentary series, Best Kept Secret.
22: I was born in 1956 in a generational Illuminati family. And tell us, what does that mean? So do your parents talk about this when you were young? They talked about their their lineage and their, what was their belief system? Their belief system was basically the old religion of Moloch, and it's a mind-control religion. It's a religion based on ceremonial abuse of children in the programmable state from one to seven years old. What Jay Parker is describing is often called Monarch programming intended to create dissociative states within traumatized youth. When asked about Monarch being a subproject of MKUltra, former CIA director William Colby is alleged to have said that it was stopped between the late 60s and early 70s, but with no paper trail to prove its existence. I was not surprised by Michael Aquino's response when I asked him about Monarch. Were you ever familiar with a Monarch project or so-called Monarch subproject of MKUltra?
20: Well, the monarch uh, program, as far as I'm concerned, is nothing more than an urban myth.
22: With the background in the CIA's Phoenix program during the Vietnam War, which was centered around assassinations, torture, and psychological black operations, could Aquino be trusted to tell the truth? The producers of the Cook Report certainly didn't seem to think so.
2: Army investigators here at the Presidio base in San Francisco have now formally accused him of ritually abusing young children from the base's daycare center. Indeed, one young girl says she was horribly abused
18: by both Michael and Lilith Aquino at their nearby home. A U.S. Army chaplain made an accusation of child molestation uh, centering on us at the Presidio of San Francisco at a time when my wife and I were living 3,000 miles away in Washington, D.C., but we have a copy of the police report and the child appears to have identified them. No, it.
1: that's not true.
2: But as the police report shows, and the Aquinos know full well, the victim of that attack did identify them both as her abusers to her parents, to her therapist, and to the army. What's more, since that original disclosure, at least five other children have made identical allegations. Now, it's important to emphasize the fact that Colonel Michael Aquino. You know, actually sued the United States Army to take his name off of the criminal investigations divisions, CID's list of alleged child molesters from the Presidio scandal, and he lost. Now, what's so interesting is, of course, in 1983, um, before that period of time, the Virginian County police were asked to make an inquiry into the leaders of the temple of Set, and they came up with some surprising facts aquino of course was an expert in the techniques of psychological warfare uh, a skill that was to prove useful to him in more ways than one what happened was it was unveiled and with what i already knew became public knowledge he held a high level international security clearance he was on second to nato the north atlantic treaty organization and he was a member of the World Affairs Council. Now, what happened was the Virginian inquiry uncovered the fact that 12 other leading lights in the Temple of Set were U.S. Army intelligence officers.
22: Aquino and his fellow intelligence operatives within the Temple of Set demonstrate a clear link between occultism, which means hidden knowledge, and mind war. Isn't that the very essence of magic, to manipulate the mind?
18: To me, this is where the darkness comes from. This is the CIA's operations, Bluebird, Artichoke, MKUltra. These were cynical manipulations of human consciousness, disregarding any ethical or moral considerations. The idea of probing the human mind, probing the psyche, wiping out memories, replacing them with other memories, uh, hypnotizing people, getting them to take certain types of psychotropic drugs. Uh, convincing them to commit you know, assassinations and then forget all about it uh, to carry out uh, clandestine operations and then have no memory of it later. Um, the Sorcerer's Apprentice, you know, from Fantasia, you know, all those brooms dancing and then suddenly uh, getting out of control. That to me was what, you know, these, these programs were like. You're actually causing initiatory states to take place. You're initiating people, but without the safeguards of initiation.
22: How do you explain to people that this is something that is real in terms of the ritual abuse a victim base, that basically creates what's called what multiple personality or dissociative identity, and how oftentimes these memories can be suppressed and they're not just false memories, essentially, as oftentimes the uh, media labels it.
12: So, how have human beings treated human beings for the last hundred thousand years, but particularly the last hundred years? So then it goes straight to Nazi Germany. That's obviously a very organized group of people. They murdered at least six million people. They tortured people. It was very systematic. They did all these medical experiments, and including these atrocious medical experiments on children. And these are like regular, Caucasian, Western European, civilized people.
22: I was going to ask you, speaking of Nazi Germany, um, I heard that you, during, uh, during your time in the military, I think, conducted a Temple of Set ritual at the Wevelsberg Castle where Himmler's SS used to uh, have their meetings, right? It was sort of their their secret, their their headquarters, right? Their secret castle. Is that correct, you conducted a ritual there?
20: Yes, that would have been in 1982. It's generally referred to as the Wevelsberg working. In fact, most of the SS never came near the Wevelsberg. It was a pet project of Heinrich Himmler's and it was oriented towards the grail. It would have been very fascinating to see how that all transpired If, in fact, the SS and Himmler had survived the war, and he'd been allowed to continue with it. But uh, then I think you would have seen something uh, dramatically different, a little bit, as I said, more towards the exploration of the human soul from a meditative standpoint than the sort of uh, comic book characters that you normally see of it.
13: Uh, Heinrich Himmler was studying the black arts and, and trying to understand more about uh, the effect on the person's mind that is exposed to these blood rituals and sort of thing. Um, what amazingly enough, uh, Colonel
12: Aquino uh, found out that this uh, was a wonderful trauma base for controlling people's minds.
22: Aquino's admiration for Himmler, a man devoted to breeding pure Aryan supermen, can be understood by their shared fascination with occultism. Some have argued that the entire structure of Nazism was occult, rooted in myth, secretive hierarchy, and propaganda, mind control. After the war, many of those Nazi doctors, scientists, and intelligence officers were brought to work for the U.S. government. In fact, the godfather of the CIA, and of the MK Ultra program, Alan Dulles, personally intervened to make sure Himmler's chief of staff was never prosecuted at Nuremberg.
0: Once you know to look out for the goat-headed demon Baphomet and other symbols of ritualistic abuse, you'll unfortunately notice them everywhere. In addition to Baphomet, entities commonly worshipped by this cabal include Satan, Lucifer, Baal, the demon lord of hell, and Moloch, the owl god of child sacrifice. One location in particular where these criminal elites gather to worship Moloch, Bohemian Grove. Moloch and Bohemian Grove. Bohemian Grove is a 2,700-acre private retreat located in Monte Rio, California, north of San Francisco. Criminal elites take a break from raping and pillaging the planet to come here each summer and rape and pillage one another, as well as any adults and children that have been trafficked to the resort for their depraved self-indulgence. The story about Bohemian Grove was broken in 2000 by notorious conspiracy theorist Alex Jones when Jones snuck into the grove and secretly recorded the cremation of care ceremony. The cremation of care takes place each July when the Grovers burn a child effigy to the owl god of child sacrifice,
23: Moloch. Bohemian Grove is a 2,700 acre redwood tree grove located in Monte Rio California. In July of each year politicians such as presidents along with businessmen and celebrities attend the campground to witness ceremonies and to partake in various activities. Members of the Grove claim it is simply a men's club which provides entertainment for two weeks in the summer. Many people have come out in the past claiming they have been trafficked to Bohemian Grove to be a part of human hunting games. This is when people are taken captive then released into the woods and the elite hunt them with guns for sport. The bohemian club formed in 1872. It is a private men's club consisting of the most prominent men in the world including presidents, politicians, business tycoons, senior media executives and many other powerful people. In 1893 the bohemian club located their gatherings at bohemian grove. By 1899 they purchased the land and privatized it. Pictures from the early days of bohemian grove shows the members lynching men and also shows young children being bound to altars. Members and guests who enter the grove must follow the Strict guidelines of what goes on at the Grove stays at the Grove. All discussions within the grove whether they be business related or personal must stay confidential. The clubs motto is weaving spiders come not here. This implies that outside concerns and business deals are to be left outside. Although this is a clubs motto the members rarely stick to it. Important political and business deals have been developed at the grove. Many military operations have been masterminded at the grove. These include the Manhattan Project which led to the creation of the atomic bomb. In 1981, ABC News aired a news story about the Bohemian Grove. The report listed members such as Gerald Ford, George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, and many more. The membership list has included every Republican Party and some Democratic Party US presidents since 1923, along with many cabinet officials, directors, and CEOs of large corporations, including major financial institutions, major military contractors, oil companies, banks, and media moguls. Before the entertainment starts the men are involved in a ceremony called the cremation of care. The Grove is not just simply a high profile camping spot, it consists of hundreds of structures ranging from clubhouses, bedrooms, theatres, industrial sized kitchens and the staging area where the cremation of care is performed. The cremation of care ceremony was first conducted at the bohemian grove in 1881. Before the elite indulge in various activities, they must first perform the cremation of care. During this ritual, they sacrifice a human effigy made out of a metal framework which is covered in paper. The effigy they sacrifice is known as care. They burn it and sacrifice it so they can become carefree while at the grove and partake in various activities. The ceremony is described as an exercising of the demon to ensure the success of the ensuing two weeks. The ceremony is done at sunset on the second Saturday of July each year. It is conducted by a man known as a high priest. He wears a silver robe with a red cape. A high priest is a luciferian name for a male who oversees rituals. The high priest is accompanied by about 24 men who wear long black and red robes. The men also carry torches the high priest wears a microphone which broadcasts his voice over a sound system. The ritual is watched by a thousand spectators. Radio show host, documentary filmmaker and conspiracy theorist Alex Jones successfully infiltrated into the bohemian grove in 2000. He captured the cremation of care ceremony on tape.
18: Time <laughs> which, which
12: the here has lost its power under these friendly trees. So shall we burn thee once again this night. And in the flames that keep thine empty, ye shall read the sign that summer sets us free.
14: Ye shall burn thee once
4: again.
19: Now believe, flame, which hither ye have brought from regions where I reign,
17: Ye fools and priests. I spit upon your fire.
18: Be gone, no care. Fire
12: shall have its will of
24: thee. Beyond all no care. And all the
12: winds they carry with thy dust. Hail, fellowships, eternal flame. Once again, midsummer sets us free. <laughs>
23: While there, Alex Jones claimed he didn't see anything conspicuous but claimed the grove was rife with homosexual activity. Since he infiltrated, the security in and around the grove has increased. Police dogs and thermal cameras are now used to make sure future infiltrations do not occur. They sacrifice a human effigy to a 40 foot concrete owl statue, the owl is the groves mascot. The bohemian club themselves only refer to this figure as great owl. This has led to many people speculating to who the owl represents. Some claim the owl represents moloch, an ancient canaanite god associated with child sacrifice. Others claim it is the owl of minerva. Minerva is a roman goddess of wisdom, the goddess minerva is also associated with sacrifice. Here is
0: Alex Jones discussing Bohemian Grove with comedian Tim Dillon on Joe Rogan's podcast in 2020.
8: It's 2700 acres. It was set up by Mark Twain. And it was a liberal deal for, like, hookers and, and gay dudes and just everything else. Just, you go back to, like, the 1870s when Mark Twain set up. It was classically liberal. It was partying. It was their own 2700 acres. It was saloons. They brought in female hookers. You know, it, you know, there was gay guys in there, everything. It was just, it was bohemian groves, what they called it that. Because people did whatever they wanted. And it was it was, it was was open. And they had, like, poetry and they had plays and had all the rest of it. Then, uh, by the time of Howard Taft became president, the Republicans basically bought it. So the reason it's important is the Republicans go there to like they ship in all these private hookers, all these jets land nearby, but they also have a lot of gay sex, which they use then to basically compromise people into the cult. And so there's a lot of gay sex. How do you know this? uh, It came out in news articles. No one ever got footage of it. I was in there for one day. I snuck in. I had people. I looked good back then. They hit on me a lot. I had like you know people I recognized from TV walking around. Hey, let's go right now. I mean, it's a big gay hookup deal. Four Republicans. I'm just telling you what it is. And, and then and, and then they've got this this ritual that's only the feeder group. So I'm sitting there during the ritual, and I'm like, hey, this is pretty cool. The two go, shut up, I'll kill you. And they're all taking it very seriously. And I'm not saying it's a gay thing. I'm saying that some so of that goes you, on.
24: you were saying it was cool and people were getting angry that you were saying it's No, No, cool. I mean,
8: I was just quietly going, oh, this is really interesting. And they're like, shut up. This is a very important ritual. And they were taking it very serious. This hearse comes in with the body of a child. It is an effigy. They're not killing yeah. it.
24: And well, they, it's and, just a bundle of sticks, right? Yeah.
8: Well, it looks like a kid. No. It, well, later, others infiltrated later that worked there and got his photos of it. its an image of a
17: kid, It's a little kid. Because moloch in, in 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 biblical is who they sacrificed sacrifice to Canaanite. It's a kids. bull, but yeah. they do it as an owl. But they, they do it him... as an owl, yeah. But yeah. that's from the Bible, is you would sacrifice a child to moloch. Give not your yeah. children to the fires of moloch.
8: Right and and, right. and and so I've I've given it to experts in religious history. It's not even you know from Christian perspective. Yeah. It's a
24: Faustian deal mixed with Babylonian and religious stuff from Tyre. Yeah. It's quirky. Look at that. Look at that owl god and look at the fire underneath the owl god.
17: And there's Ronald Reagan. I mean, if you saw that, if you were in the woods and you just saw that, you would be terrified. And Richard Nixon says, Richard Nixon on the Richard Nixon tape
8: says it's a gay orgy. Richard Nixon said
17: that? You can pull up Richard Nixon talks about Yeah, Richard Nixon said something about it where he It's the most uh, goddamn faggy thing you ever seen. I think it's I think it's just allowing <laughs> 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 Well nothing against that's what they saying. <sighs> I think it's guys that aren't gay that are that are that engage in gay acts in the woods and then they have something on each other similar to Epstein's Island where well, that's
8: it's, it. Like, it, it, it's that's it, it, what It's that's it a rich it's a, it's a yeah. it's a it's like a fraternity
17: doing that You've gotta
8: screw So it yeah. is that
24: and they don't allow women. No. Richard 70, Nixon, know, Bohemian Grove, most <laughs> faggy goddamn thing he could ever imagine. Yeah. It? Yes, play it. Oh, 100% play it. I want to hear it's this. the Nixon tapes, yeah. Let me hear this. us look at You understand. Yeah. You know what's happening. San Francisco
7: is
18: just gone. It's clear over
9: it. I don't know. But it isn't. It isn't just down in, in the rampart part of town. But the upper class of San Francisco is
7: that way. The Bohemian Grove that I attend on time to time. The Easterners and the others
18: that come
17: there, but it is the most faggot goddamn thing you will ever, ever ever imagine. The San Francisco crowd that goes in there—it's just terrible. so weird—the owl and uh, the—it's interesting, and it—I don't know how seriously they take it. I mean, that's the real question, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, the whole gay thing's a side issue, right? The point
8: is, is that I've talked to people that—I mean. According to Ted Gunderson, first time I ever heard about this was from this former high-level FBI agent who was going to be the FBI director, but he wouldn't go along with corruption, so he wasn't.
17: It's on the record. Gunderson almost became the FBI director, and he blew up like the things, like the Franklin scandal, and he's been a he's, and the yeah, Finders and the Finders, finders club. cult, which was huge. Yeah, which was where the CIA was caught trafficking. You know, the Finders is a cult that was caught trafficking children, and the CIA squashed the Florida. Uh, and, and then and, Gunderson got it yeah. raided in, in D.C. and, and right. found a whole CIA facility
24: with
8: the snuff films, everything, Telex machine, and so he told me. About yeah. all this,
24: and I thought he was crazy. Yeah, even though he yeah. was Ted Gunderson. You told us about it, and we actually pulled up one of those stories. And I was correct. Yes, you're correct. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. So Ted so- Gunderson is the reason I know about this. And, and he said
8: he said that they get people interested with with, with that ritual. Most there's like two thousand members. They bring about a thousand guests. Not everybody can even bring a guest. Only like the head of each camp can bring a guest. Most of them are nice. Clint Eastwood goes there. You know, Janie Glover goes there. But it's Ooh. an all male deal. But I just want to say that, (laughs) overall, it started out as a a truly artsy, liberal thing that I think is good. I think guys deserve to go off the woods, like we've done since Humans Were Humans, and and, and party and do whatever. The thing is, then the weird skull—here's what happened. About 1900, Skull and Bones, that was at uh, Yale in New Haven, Connecticut, that was a German death cult, it took over Bohemian Grove, and that's when they set up that as the central deal.
24: So it's this big, inviting, fun party. What happens at Skull and Bones? Because that's one of the other rumors about Skull and Bones. They compromise you. I know. They compromise you so that you're always a part of this organization. Well, before he died, I did multiple
8: interviews with Anthony Sutton, the top congressional advisor to Senator Frank Church. And we only know about Sutton because Charlotte Iserby, whose father was high level Skull and Bones, gave him all of their internal manuals.
24: And she's been a frequent guest. she's she's retired now. America's secret establishment and an introduction to the order of skull and bones. Yes. okay.
8: And so this is this is a Russell Trust, uh, true Illuminati. Illuminati set up 1776 to counter our revolution by Adam Weishaupt. It funds the Jacobins. It funds the French Revolution. It's the, it's the opposite of a true egalitarian, open liberal revolution. It's the leftist. Always say they're the liberal. Liberal and leftist are two different deals. Leftist is left-hand path, Satanism. Liberalism is egalitarian, open society, true liberalism. And so the left-hand path uh, set this up. And then they wanted, they, they sent all this opium money they had over in 1831 to Yale to set up a German secret society of the Illuminati, which then has become one of the dominant secret societies. And in there, they do actual satanic rituals. They get in uh, coffins. Uh, they, they they do simulated human sacrifices. They have gay sex as part of the ritual. They, they, they bathe in uh, huge facilities of feces. Uh, this was this was a made by Robert De Niro made a, a movie Skull uh, and Bones are, they're doing that stuff now. Absolutely. I know wow. somebody broke into it but Wow. Who's the uh, How can this be proven? Well, Matt Damon made a movie called The Good Shepherd, I think. Yes. And and in that it's Robert De Niro directed it.
17: Okay, and that's super accurate. Where it's got the, the sword and the devil, and they're in
8: they're in these big vats of cow They they
17: and- did leak a Facebook uh, photo album of a bunch of skull and bones kids hand on a Deer Island. They kind of look like losers. I know they're not. <laughs> no, no, but- I know they're not, but they kind of look like losers. I mean, it was kind like of like embarrassing. Billionaires look like losers. Yeah, they look like emaciated. You were like, these are the these are the Illuminati. It was kind of like no. I totally
8: agree with you. Yeah, remember, remember ABC News because they wanted to get Bush in trouble right before the two thousand and four election another frat was able to because they're all doing this crap right shoot video down into it where they're going devil equals death satan and they had girls they finally brought into the membership it was all boys before yeah sacrificing so of course it's idiotic it's training wheels for what they do but inside they go grave rob they've
17: got geronimo's skull yeah the george hw bush stole supposedly stole geronimo's skull yeah you got to do things like i don't st- know if that but that's a, that's a legend rumor thing well, yeah it's it, well i
8: it's probably bro- true. It's been broken into. Yeah. Uh, one time the police went in there. But the point is, is that Skull and Bones, Order 322, is the Illuminati Germanic death cult that now set up chapters all over the U.S. And it took over Bohemian Grove around 1900. And so that's why Bohemian Grove is still this artisan, you know, deal of elitist artist. But then it got co-opted by the Republican Party and Skull and Bones. And Helmut Schmidt, German chancellor, wrote Men in Power as a political retrospective. he retired in the late 80s saying i love our illuminati rituals that we have in germany in our own sacred groves but i think they've taken to a new level with skull and bones at bohemian grove and i really enjoy the
17: time we have there so these are just these elite institutions where and and Skull and bones i think they seek to like create uh close friends amongst people that may not know each other create loyalty amongst this group of people that's why they got to tell them all the things they've done you got to tell them all the sexual history all that stuff they want these people to be loyal to each other so when they they're not loyal to the laws of America. They're loyal to this, this oath that they take with each other. Look at this. Yeah.
24: Descendants sue skull and bones over Geronimo's bones. Documents yeah. show George, H. Bush, George W. Bush's grandfather robbed Geronimo's grave members. <clears throat> uh, members of the secret society allegedly steal valuable things and put them in tomb. Great grandson says Geronimo should be bur- buried in accordance with the tradition. Federal law protects Native Americans' rights to their family members' remains.
8: Wow. and let's expand on that what he just said because this guy's done his it studying it's like thank in t- you. it's like a team america when the head guy goes he goes suck my cock gary it's not about sex in skull and bones in bohemian grove he what he said is most of these guys are not gay it's right. an act of dominance like oh you're a senator you want to be president bend over and like a former president
24: screws you in the ass and that's what they do i mean that, the ritual is i'm in charge bend over well, isn't that a, a thing with fraternities anyway? Like hazing? The you yeah, jizz it, on a cracker.
17: Exactly. And so it? it's the next deal. Yeah, but most people in fraternity I mean, these are the top kids. These are kids that they think are going to occupy leadership positions in the world. And so, often do. And eventually. often do. So even Let me people, give you an example. Yeah. Even John Ronson saw the photo with me when we snuck in
8: Bohemian Grove. Yeah. And and they had it hanging in it's Henry Kissinger bent over in
24: a woman's dress sticking his fingers in his ass. Bill Clinton in Wait, a blue dress with Jeff in Jeffrey Epstein's house. Yeah, but that's a, just an artist rendition. Do you know that that was just an artist made that? Yeah, and maybe why- this was an artist
8: rendition. We're in a clubhouse.
24: Yeah, Ronson wrote about this. Oh, so it's a photo or a, it,
8: it, a painting? No, it was a. It looked like a photo, but let's just say it's a painting. I don't know. I was. I mean, it's, it's ancient memory, twenty years ago. Okay, twenty plus. You know, but I mean, Ronson's like, look at that. And I'm like, oh, is that Kissinger? Yeah, and it's Kissinger. It, it's all about being improper. And then they all go get caught to
24: compromise each other to be in the club. It's a hazing thing. So that they can trust each other because they're all doing shady shit.
17: Yes. Even if it's an artist rendition, why is Jeffrey Epstein having in his townhouse a picture of the president in a blue dress?
24: Well, because the president flew in his fucking plane 26 times. That's what I mean.
4: And by the way, Israel Maxwell
8: is now come out in court It's getting no attention confirming, okay, Clinton did fly to that island. That broke four days ago. It's gotten zero right. Yeah, no, they're not yeah. paying.
17: They're not paying attention. We haven't heard anything other than those court documents that listen, just came out. Listen, I told you. Listen,
8: guys, it's not like I'm even that special. My mom's brother was a famous helicopter pilot in Vietnam, running Black Ops into Laos and Cambodia yeah. and stuff. And then he, I, I, I shouldn't tell these stories, but no one's ever heard this stuff. But you know, I remember growing up him telling me this stuff, and it was, it was true. Like, they were I – mean, I'm not going to do it. The please, point is, please. No, What's I the problem? I just can't do it. What's just, the danger? you said so much. Uh, uh, well, no, I mean, let's just say he took the fall for something that was going on. He didn't get in trouble for it. He got promoted. And he was right. involved in
17: Iran-Contra. And that's how people get promoted. They fail upward by taking a lot of times the blame for something or this is – that's like common. Yeah, so I yeah. grew up –
8: I mean, I grew up, not just him, but other family, you know, that was, it was like something special that, you know, about those Navy SEAL guys, you got a security done a bunch of crazy stuff. That's what our military does. It's, it's not what you hear on the news. Right. And, and, and it, it's just completely out of control stuff. Right. And I mean, my uncle told me, he said, he said, yeah, I know I got out of working for these groups and everything uh, as, you know, an army officer that was sheep dipped. He wasn't, he would not yeah. he wasn't wearing an army uniform with stuff he was yeah. doing. Yeah.
24: Right. we were talking high level like yeah. we are talking running
8: the real stuff special ops he was in charge he had like the command base in Guatemala City because right. he was like a top Morse code guy yeah. of course they had satellites then, but nobody could read this Morse code coded so he was sending stuff to the White House Morse code like the, he was like when he was a kid he was a champion Morse coder so he wasn't just in command he was like running all the stuff and uh he just said i had to do it because he said it was kids being smuggled out of orphanages by the cia for sex ops in dc jesus christ and he told me that he told
17: me that when he
8: was dying of pneumonia jesus fuck! Yeah.
17: No, now wh- what is it with kids why it's is the way to compromise people it's, it's, it's the it's the it's, energy too yeah i mean if
8: somebody will hurt kids and he would
17: if somebody will hurt kids yeah, it's like what else they'll do anything
0: tim dylan is absolutely correct If these psychopath elites will hurt kids, what won't they do?
23: Human hunting refers to humans being hunted and killed for pleasure, entertainment, sport or sustenance. There have been historical incidences of the practice being carried out during times of social upheaval. In ancient Greece, the upper class of Sparta regularly practiced the stalking and murder of the lower class population. During the Spanish Civil War, wealthy landowners hunted the lower class on horseback. Many people have come forward claiming to be survivors of human hunting events which took place at bohemian grove. There have been 4 people to have come forward claiming to have witnessed ritualistic murder of children and people at bohemian grove. These include Fiona Barnett, David Schurter, Peter Alexander Chernoff and Paul Benassi. Fiona Barnett is a victim of the CIA mind control program MKUltra. Her programming took place in Australia. As part of her being a mind controlled subject she became what is known as a grand dame. This is a luciferian term for a woman who oversees rituals and the training of children. She against her own will was part of a luciferian cult in Australia which involved many prominent people. She claimed at the age of six she was trafficked from Australia to America to attend a bohemian grove hunting party. She claimed to have been trafficked with another abuse victim by the name of David Schurter. While there she claimed her and other children were dressed in teddy bear costumes then released into the woods and hunted. During this hunt, she claims the theme song teddy bears picnic was played over the grove sound system she claims she participated in a pedophile hunt within the redwood forest and was drugged and raped by reverend billy graham in a pink bubble themed cabin this cabin would have been allocated to the group the perpetrator was a part of
1: former president richard nixon raped me in the back of a usa cia military plane at australia's main military airport the one where air force one lands if it visits australia After this, I was child-sex trafficked from Sydney Airport to California, USA, in a cargo plane. I was gassed and stuffed in a wooden crate like an animal. During this trip, I was raped by media founder Ted Turner at a pedophile party held at Disneyland, and I was trafficked to the annual summer camp at Bohemian Grove, attended by notable politicians, businessmen, and other VIPs. I was raped by Reverend Billy Graham, in a pink bubble themed cabin at Bohemian Grove. Billy Graham told me that his good buddy, Richard Nixon, had recommended me to him. At Bohemian Grove, I was one of a group of children dressed as teddy bears and hunted for sport by men in the forest to the theme song, Teddy Bear's Picnic. I also witnessed the ritual
23: murder of a woman by male guests dressed in black Luciferian robes. Peter Alexander Chernoff claims he witnessed children being murdered at Bohemian Grove in 1984.
12: Peter, you've witnessed children being sacrificed at the Grove?
4: You know, I did. And uh, I've made this very public. It uh, is revolving around the case, the missing child case of Kevin Collins. And if anybody looks it up on the internet, they still say that it's an unsolved case. I've been to law enforcement in San Francisco. I made a mention of this for the first time back in 2003. I, myself, Peter Alexander Cherenoff, am one of three people that have witnessed ritualistic murders of children during the 80s up here, uh, during the 80s. The other one is David Schurter, and the the third person is uh, Paul Bonacci. At the Bohemian Grove, I was involved in a rather private ritual, Catholic, Nazi, Satanic in nature. A service, a working, if you will, with nine relative unknowns at the time, so to speak. A most unique killing ritual table with nine retractable, long, thin, sharp knives. Blades. Young Catholic Kevin Collins, snatched off the streets of San Francisco, was sacrificed. As he lay on the table, the knives were, were brought up through him. And after this, each participant, buoyed by the others, rose to prominence. Leaders of the Minions princes unto mammon. I called it nine knights, nine arms, nine blades. The participants, uh, except for one or two I didn't mention, are Willie Brown, Arlen Specter, Barney Frank, Roger Mahoney, the L.A. Cardinal, Ratzinger, who's now the Pope, Robert Byrd, George Bush Sr., and Warren Buffett, and the master of ceremonies was Dr. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino.
0: Here's Kathy O'Brien in 2007 detailing her experience with human hunting.
11: Has any of what you relayed to them been discredited? Has
3: seriously discredited by anyone? Not at all. The only, it's all been covered up by the 1947 National Security Act Mm -hmm. by those criminals who are still in control of the government. The same ones you're talking the about. Same if they're handful not dead. Of they're still there. And, and matter of fact, this same this same handful. In 1984, I had cause to be in um, uh, Lampy, Missouri, which is just over the line over the the line from the Arkansas Mina uh, operations. And Bill Clinton and George Bush, who are, who are very good friends, along with Dick Cheney, who they're all very good friends, um, with the same agenda. Um, George Bush, who I consider to be at the highest up, along with Dick Cheney. They George are, Bush Sr. Yes, George Bush Sr., definitely. George Bush Jr., I know for a fact and witnessed and is, is under absolute mind control. I've himself. always thought that. He is. Watching he's on, that he's, he is a good example of what mind control looks like. He can deliver a speech verbatim because it's been programmed in. And it's but the same ask, one
11: the next 70 times when yes. the media gets it. It hasn't changed a bit. No, his inflection as, is the
3: same. Exactly, he, the voice inflection is the same as how it's programmed in. But ask him a spontaneous question, and he can answer it. And that's exactly what mind control looks like. That's exactly um, how how I would have how I looked under mind control at that time. But one place where they were training the um, military special forces, in particular, was at this. Uh, Swiss Villa Amphitheater in Lampy Missouri, where I had cause to be exposed to George Bush and Bill Clinton, who were involved in a military maneuver called the Most Dangerous Game, which is a form of human hunting, and is supposed to teach a person they have no place to run and no place to hide. Well, I since know better than that. Um, there is a place to run, and it's right at them with the truth. There's no need to hide. They're the ones who are hiding mm-hmm. what they're doing mm-hmm. um, under the 1947 National Security Act and any, any other means that they can come up with any perversion, diversion, or, or anything else mm-hmm. that, uh, that they might do. But nevertheless, I heard Bill Clinton and George Bush talking, and George Bush told him then, that when the American people became disillusioned with Republicans leading them into what Adolf Hitler term and George Bush termed the New World Order this mind-controlled society then Bill Clinton as a Democrat would be put into place and that was his uh, reward, so to speak, for all of the funding that he was doing through the cocaine operations. Um, George Bush ran this country through the Reagan administration. Yes. And uh, since I was working, actively working during the, the Reagan-Bush administration, I was privy to so much of that aspect. George Bush was very much in control. George Bush, Sr. was very much in control of the United States during the Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. Reagan said he was an actor, and Mm -hmm. that's all he was. He was just uh, a mouthpiece Mm -hmm. for um, leading the people and misleading the people in, uh, in other directions. But when the, net, the plan after that was to put George Bush Jr. in. After who, Clinton. After Clinton, because he was being groomed for the presidency and under total robotic mind control. Mm-hmm. And since the plan was to have people warring with each other on a religious level, they created this illusion that, that George Bush is um, in a, a religious kind of leader which I don't think that I don't think that flew with anybody I don't think anybody no, bought into that I don't because think they did either it didn't run deep and
11: he was treated similarly to the way you were treated yes he was as,
3: as matter of fact um, in Mount Shasta there's a another uh, government military installation where a most dangerous game is played or and was played um, in the winter of 86. And it was there that I, my daughter was there as well and was traumatized, the same way. And it was there that um, Bush Jr. was exposed to most dangerous game. What do well. you mean
11: exposed to? He was one of. The he was hunted. Who were hunted? He was by hunted. whom? Um,
3: at that particular one was Dick Cheney and George Bush Sr. Seriously. And one thing, one thing that that Dick Cheney always said. Is if if I would kill you know so and so whatever special forces guy it was or whomever they were ex- disposing of at that time, if I would kill so and so, imagine what I would do to the likes of you. And so I always knew that my life was on the line, but that really wasn't anything that scared me or wasn't a motive. It was when Kelly's life was on the line, and that what he would do to do to her that was so terrifying. But it was so interesting because when. Um, Dick Cheney shot his friend in the face recently and it made the news before George Bush Jr. Um, as our acting president at this moment um, was briefed on how he was to answer that or programmed into how he was to respond to it. The cameras were on him and asked him the spontaneous question of um, uh, about this situation. And he said, he quoted his own programming verbatim and he said, If he would shoot his own friend in the face, imagine what he'd do to the likes of you.
0: O'Brien also detailed her experience at Bohemian Grove in Transformation, published five years before Alex Jones broke the story and 32 years before the first
10: Q drop. Jimmy Walker, the same photographer who had taken pornographic wedding night pictures for Larry Flint, recently had other photographs of me published in Hustler. When Dante found out, he was furious. Larry Flint and Dante both worked for the CIA, had Vatican and Mafia connections, and deliberately appealed to Reagan's perversions using Project Monarch mind-controlled slaves. What Flint could not legally publish, Dante ran through the underground. Flint and Dante lived on opposite coasts which, despite their similarities, still was not far enough apart to soothe their differences. Waving his hands in dramatic Italian gestures, Dante furiously spouted a string of obscenities over Flint's publishing photos of what he deemed his property. Accusing Flint of going to extremes to gain favor protection from the government, Dante shouted, he's a bigger whore than the girls he promotes. Michael Dante's pornographic filming abilities serve several purposes. Aside from producing porn according to Reagan's own well-known perversions and instructions, Dante was present during many key international government gatherings. Oftentimes, when I and others were prostituted to various government New World Order leaders, Dante had hidden cameras filming perverse sexual acts apparently for future blackmail leverage. These videos were scandalous in proportion and were usually ordered by Reagan. Dante turned the videos over to Reagan and covertly kept copies to protect himself. Dante converted a small room of his Beverly Hills mansion into a security vault, where he kept his personal copies of the international blackmail porn tapes there. Among these internationally scandalous tapes are numerous videos covertly produced at the supposedly secure political sex playground in Northern California, Bohemian Grove. According to Houston, Dante's high-tech undetectable cameras use fiber optics, and fish eye lens were in each of the elite clubs numerous sexual perversion theme rooms my knowledge of these cameras was due to the strategically compromising positions of the political perpetrators i was prostituted to in the various kinky theme rooms i was programmed and equipped to function in all rooms at bohemian grove in order to compromise specific government targets according to their personal perversions anything anytime anywhere with anyone was my mode of operation at the Grove. I do not purport to understand the full function of this political cesspool playground as my perception was limited to my own realm of experience. My perception is that Bohemian Grove serves those ushering in the New World Order through mind control and consists primarily of the highest mafia and U.S. government officials. I do not use the term highest loosely as copious quantities of drugs were consumed there. Project Monarch Mind Control slaves were routinely abused there to fulfill the primary purpose of the club, purveying perversion. Bohemian Grove is reportedly intended to be used recreationally, providing a supposedly secure environment for politically affluent individuals to party without restraint. The only business conducted there pertained to implementing the New World Order, through the proliferation of Mind Control atrocities, giving the place an air of Masonic secrecy. The only room where business discussions were permitted was a small, dark lounge affectionately and appropriately referred to as the underground. Sex slaves were not routinely permitted in the underground for security reasons, leaving the lounge's small stage as the only source of entertainment. This entertainment ranged from would-be talents such as Lee Atwater, Bill Clinton, and George Bush to CIA operative entertainers such as Boxcar Willie and Lee Greenwood. On one occasion, I was instructed to meet with former President Gerald Ford in the underground, where Lee Atwater was picking and singing. As I walked through the smoke-filled room to Ford's table, Atwater interrupted his song to cryptically acknowledge my unwelcome presence by singing choruses of Over the Rainbow, and birds song for me country roads while emphasizing the lines of Almost Heaven, West Virginia. My purpose at the Grove was sexual in nature, and therefore my perceptions were limited to a sex slave's viewpoint. As an effective means of control to ensure undetected proliferation of their perverse indulgences, slaves such as myself were subjected to ritualistic trauma. I knew each breath I took could be my last as the threat of death lurked in every shadow. Slaves of advancing age or with failing programming were sacrificially murdered at random in the wooded grounds of Bohemian Grove, and I felt it was simply a matter of time until it would be me. Rituals were held at a giant concrete owl monument on the banks of, ironically enough, the Russian River. These occultist rituals stemmed from the scientific belief that mind-controlled slaves required severe trauma to ensure compartmentalization of memory and not from any spiritual motivation. My own threat of death was instilled when I witnessed the sacrificial death of a young dark-haired victim at which time I was instructed to perform sexually as though my life depended upon it. I was told the next sacrifice victim could be you. Any time when you least expect it, the owl will consume you. Prepare yourself and stay prepared. Being prepared equated to being totally suggestible, on my toes, awaiting their command. After returning to Tennessee, Houston attempted to distort my bohemian grove experience by instructing me to prepare myself for imminent death. he ordered me into a bathtub of cold water, placed ice cubes in my vagina, then transferred me to his bed. There he tied a coroner's type tag on my toe and hypnotically deepened my trance to the point where my heart and breathing were nearly stopped. Then he gratified himself on my cold, stiff body through necrophilia, reportedly one of his favorite perversions. Houston had perfected his perversion to the extent that he handed the keys to my death-state programming to Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino for use in Reagan's hands-on mind-control demonstrations. My death-state also further equipped me in my role of anything, anytime, anywhere with anyone to be accessed at Bohemian Grove. The club offered a necrophilia-themed room to its members. I was so heavily drugged and programmed when using the necrophilia room that the threat of actually slipping through death's door and being sacrificed before I knew it did not affect me. My whole existence was balanced precariously on the edge of death as a matter of routine anyway. My robotic state did not permit me the luxury of self-preservation, and I could only do exactly what I was told to do. My necrophilia room experience was only for the purpose of providing Dante a compromising film of a targeted member, anyway. Other perversion theme rooms at the Bohemian Club included what I heard Ford refer to as the Dark Room. When he not so cleverly said, Let's go to the Dark Room and see what develops, I understood from experience that he was interested in indulging in his perverse obsession for pornography. In the dark room, members had sex with the same uncontrolled slave they were viewing in porn on a big-screen television. There was a triangular glass display centered in a main thoroughway where I was locked in with various trained animals, including snakes. Members walking by watched illicit sex acts of bestiality, women with women, mothers with daughters, kids with kids, or any other unlimited, perverse visual display. I was once brutally assaulted by Dick Cheney in the leather room, which was designed like a dark black leather lined train berth. As I crawled through the leather flaps covering the narrow entrance, I heard Cheney play on the word berth as the soft blackness engulfed me. With a small opening covered, the blinding darkness enhanced the sense of touch and provided an option of anonymity. Cheney jokingly claimed that I blew his cover when I recognized his all too familiar voice and abnormally large penis size. There was a room of shackles and tortures, black lights and strobes, an opium den, ritualistic sex altars, a chapel, group orgy rooms including poster beds, water beds, and kitten houses. I was used as a rag doll in the toy store and as a urinal in the golden arches room. From the owl's roost to the necrophilia room, no memory of sexual abuse is as horrifying as the conversations overheard in the underground pertaining to implementing the New World Order. I learned that perpetrators believed that controlling the masses through propaganda mind manipulation did not guarantee there would be a world left to dominate due to environmental and overpopulation problems. The solution being debated was not pollution population control, but mass genocide of selected undesirables.
0: Outside of Bohemian Grove, Moloch makes another surprise appearance in Hillary Clinton's emails. The below email comes from the October 2016 WikiLeaks release of Clinton's campaign manager's emails, John Podesta, who previously served as Obama's campaign manager and Bill Clinton's chief of staff. Many journalists have attributed this October surprise to be a significant driver in her loss to Donald Trump. Clinton's email was to Huma Abedin, her chief of staff, while Clinton served as Obama's secretary of state. The email was sent on August 30, 2009, with the subject, Forward, Honduras, Maybe, Maybe, and reads as follows. Beal called a little after 1.30 p.m. to say the meeting with the de facto envoys had been abruptly canceled, but for perhaps a positive reason. Micheletti has asked about half the team to return to Tegucigalpa. Corrales stayed as he seeks to confirm that he will not lose his visa. In the phone call he got from the de facto envoys as they headed for the airport, Beale said he detected a positive attitude. The envoys seemed confident that they would get M to sign the SJ accord. The envoys promised to call Beale late this afternoon with the news from Honduras. If, 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 if the news is positive, Beale and OAS political director Victor Rico will leave for Degucigalpa tomorrow morning to meet Micheletti, make sure... This is not another time-wasting tactic, and get something in writing from him that he agrees to the accord and will sign it. Just before speaking to me, Beal had spoken with Arias, who expressed cautious optimism that we might have a breakthrough. Arias told Beal to tell us that if that happens, the United States gets the credit. Arias said the UAS has played the game exactly right with the appropriate mix of carrots, sticks, toughness, unified message, even-handedness, and above all, good timing." Arias said the Europeans have been calling him over the past two days and have fallen into line with the U.S. The Swedes, as head of the EU, and have told him that they will take their cue from the U.S. and will support U.S. actions. Arias Spiel said was extremely complimentary of the great political instincts shown by Secretary Clinton. With fingers crossed, the old rabbit's foot out of the box in the attic, I will be sacrificing a chicken in the backyard to Moloch. The first terrible thing about her closing sentence is that it references a sacrifice to Moloch, the owl slash bull god of child sacrifice. The second terrible thing about her closing sentence is that chicken is a common pedophile reference to little boy. What the fuck is Hillary Clinton involved in? What else did the WikiLeaks Podesta emails reveal? And what is Pizzagate? WikiLeaks, John Podesta, Pizzagate and the ITNJ. If you want to understand the establishment perspective on a controversial topic, Wikipedia is an excellent place to start. Here's what the captured big tech platform has to say about Pizzagate. Wikipedia Pizzagate Conspiracy Theory. Quote, Pizzagate is a conspiracy theory that went viral during the 2016 United States presidential election cycle. It has been extensively discredited by a wide range of organizations, including the Washington, D.C. police. In March In 2016, the personal email account of John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign chair, was hacked in a spearfishing attack. WikiLeaks published his emails in November 2016. Proponents of the Pizzagate conspiracy theory falsely claimed the emails contained coded messages that connected several high-ranking Democratic Party officials and U.S. restaurants with an alleged human trafficking and child sex ring. One of the establishments allegedly involved was the Comet Ping-Pong Pizzeria in Washington, D.C., Members of the alt-right conservative journalists and others who had urged Clinton's prosecution over her use of an unrelated private email server spread the conspiracy theory on social media outlets such as 4chan, 8chan, Reddit, and Twitter. In response, a man from North Carolina traveled to Comet Ping Pong to investigate the conspiracy and fired a rifle inside the restaurant to break the lock on a door to a storage room during his search. The restaurant owner and staff also received death threats from conspiracy theorists. Pizzagate is generally considered a predecessor to the QAnon conspiracy theory. It also generated another offshoot conspiracy theory called Drip, which involved Hillary Clinton participating in the ritual murder of a child. Pizzagate resurged in 2020, mainly due to QAnon. While initially it was spread by only the far right, it has since been spread by teens on TikTok who don't otherwise fit a right-wing conspiracy theorist mold. The biggest Pizzagate spreaders on TikTok appear to otherwise be mostly interested in topics of viral dance moves and Black Lives Matter. The conspiracy theory has developed and become less partisan and political in nature, with less emphasis on Clinton and more on the alleged worldwide elite of child sex traffickers. Although Wikipedia claims to be an unbiased, open-source platform, the reality is far darker. Here is director Mickey Willis in his documentary, Plandemic, explaining the corruption of Wikipedia and its parent organization, the Wikimedia Foundation.
16: Wikipedia is the go-to destination for introductions to people, places, and things. Wikipedia is supported by the Wikimedia Foundation, a nonprofit parent organization with a long history of politically tied funders, many named, many anonymous. What exactly does a Wikipedia donor receive in exchange for their generosity? What began as an unbiased, open-source platform is now weaponized to undermine the work and reputation of anyone deemed a threat to its stakeholders. And once they smear you, they lock you out for making corrections to your own bio. In summary, most independent fact-checkers are neither independent nor factual. Simply put, they are political spin machines.
0: For more detail on how the secret police agencies have infiltrated Wikipedia, I recommend Aubrey Marcus's interview with Dr. Robert Malone. Pizzagate. The following clip comes from the documentary Out of Shadows, directed by Mike Smith. Smith spent his career in Hollywood as a stunt actor and director. However, he started to question the propaganda, wanton violence, and sexuality spewed by the industry. This eventually led him to question the CIA's involvement in Hollywood and ultimately discovering the involvement of many A-list celebrities in human trafficking Ritualistic abuse. The clip I'm about to play starts with Ricky Gervais's speech at the 2020 Golden Globes, followed by Kevin Shipp, a former CIA whistleblower, Mike Smith and Liz Crokin and David Seaman, investigative journalists who broke the Pizzagate story. A quick Google search of Ship, Smith, Crokin, and Seaman will shockingly inform you that these people are all QAnon conspiracy theorists who need to be dismissed. Why is the establishment so afraid of what they have to say?
21: But tonight isn't just about the people in front of the camera. In this room are some of the most important TV and film executives in the world. People from every background. But they all have one thing in common. They're all terrified of Ronan Farrow. <laughs> He's coming for you. He's coming for you. Look, talking of all you perverts, it was a big year... It was a big year for paedophile movies. Um, surviving R. Kelly, leaving Neverland... Two Popes. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. I don't care. I don't care. You could binge watch the entire first season of Afterlife instead of watching this show. That, that's a show about a man who wants to kill himself because his wife dies of cancer. And it's still more fun than this. OK? <laughs> Spoiler alert, um, season two is on the way, so in the end he obviously didn't kill himself. Just like Jeffrey Epstein. Shut up! I know he's your friend, but I don't care. (laughs) You had to make your own way here in your own plane, didn't you? Right, Martin Scorsese, the greatest living director, made the news for his controversial comments about the Marvel franchise. He said they're not real cinema and uh, they remind him of theme parks. I agree. Although I don't know what he's doing hanging around theme parks. He's not big enough to go on the rides, is he? (laughs) It's tiny. Right. The Irishman was amazing. It was amazing. Um, that, it was. My, my, it was great. Uh, long, but amazing. Um, it wasn't the only epic movie. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, nearly three hours long, Leonardo DiCaprio attended the premiere, and by the end, his date was too old for him. So... <laughs> Even Prince Andrew's like, come on, Leo, mate. You know, <laughs> you're nearly 50, son. Um, last one, last one, come on, guys. Our next presenter starred in Netflix's Bird Box, a movie where people survive by acting like they don't see a thing. Sort of like working for Harvey Weinstein. You did it, You, I didn't, you did it, shut the fuck up.
13: Most people don't want to cross the psychological line that this stuff is going on and we all have a mental defense mechanism uh, it's like finally admitting there's an elite pedophile ring i mean most people just don't want to go there and, and the same is here you psychologically you lose your safety your security and <clears throat> whatever innocence you have when you realize that this stuff is really going on and it's a it's a chore to cross over that barrier and realize oh my gosh this stuff is really happening and that's why it takes critical thinking that people have got to look at this stuff critically and see what they're being fed so they can cross that psychological line that they just refuse to to see it when it's right in front of them
16: when kevin said there's an elite pedophile ring well i'm thinking to myself this is this is a hard thing for me to come to terms with now It made me start thinking about conversations and things I'd heard, but I'd never saw it. It's not out in the open. And to me, I was like, "Eh, no one could do that. Because, I mean, if I saw someone hurting a kid, I would kill them. I I would literally kill them. I would never allow someone to hurt a child in front of me. Things Kevin was saying were things that were hard for me to cross the barrier. I did not want to believe it. I didn't want to go there. But as I went down this journey, I forced myself to go consider, what if this is real? And the only person that was talking about this stuff was a girl named Liz Crokin. And the media had declared her completely out of her mind. But as I started researching some of the things she was reporting on, I was like, there's truth to what she's saying. So I want to talk to her.
25: I started working in journalism at a very young age. I got my first job working for Fox Chicago at about the age of 17 years old. At the University of Iowa, I studied political science and journalism. One semester, I interned for Bill O'Reilly at Fox News Channel my last year in college. I interned for the state department's white house reporter and that placed me reporting in the white house every single day for a few months i went on to work for the chicago tribune and my first boss there told me that everything that i should get should be checked over and over and over again and verified to death that's how i was trained and that's what true honest journalist does. I started covering local politics and local hard news and then eventually I got my own column for seven years where I interviewed tons of celebrities and politicians and musicians and worked at Us Weekly and then at one point I worked at In Touch Weekly magazine but then 2015 I felt the need to get back into covering hard news. And in early 2016, I started working for Town Hall and then eventually I started working for the New York Observer and broke a lot of election related stories. I worked in media for over two decades and I never had any issues. I was very well respected. I basically was embraced by the mainstream media until I started reporting on Pizzagate. Now, when Pizzagate came out, the media tried to turn Pizzagate into something that wasn't.
13: The surprises of the presidential campaign was the explosion of
7: fake news on the internet.
2: 28-year-old Edgar Welch was arrested in Washington Sunday afternoon outside Comet Ping-Pong, a popular family pizza parlor. D.C. police say Welch fired at least one round into the restaurant floor with an AR-15 rifle like this one on his Facebook page. No one was injured.
19: Someone on Twitter whose name remains unverified but has several thousand followers posted that new emails found on Anthony Weiner's computer confirmed that Hillary Clinton was involved in a pedophilia ring. The rumor spread, inspiring some newfound internet sleuths to start digging around in John Podesta's hacked emails, searching for proof and location of the so-called sex ring.
25: In those emails, they are absolutely littered with code words, and many of these code words are food words, such as pizza.
26: Somebody said to me, hey, Dave, search for pizza in Podesta's emails. And once you go down that rabbit hole, you never really emerge the same person.
25: It was obvious from the get-go that these words were code words for something else because the context that they were used in did not make sense.
19: To be clear, not one single email in the Podesta emails discusses child sex trafficking or pedophilia. That is a fact. But there are dozens of what seem to be strangely worded emails dealing with pizza and handkerchiefs. Investigators say that those words in the emails about pizza and the talk of handkerchiefs is code language used by pedophiles.
26: There is some kind of code language. They're just not talking about pizza folks. Uh, Who phrases that? Who blocks out an hour of time to eat a slice of pizza?
25: You can get a service for a half an hour. You can get a massage for a half an hour, but you can't get food for a half an hour. It just absolutely makes no sense.
18: There's other ones like the realtor found a handkerchief. I think it has a map that seems pizza related. And uh, another one is Obama spent $65,000 flying in pizza and
25: hot dogs from Chicago. Are we using the same channels? Pizza is a well known pedophile code word that actually has been used by law enforcement to arrest online sexual predators of children. And there's been multiple arrests that have been made by law enforcement of pedophiles trying to solicit children by using the pedophile code word pizza.
19: 2007, unclassified FBI document. That document, according to the FBI, contains commonly used symbols by pedophiles to express their preference in children. Notice this one on the end, the triangle? That image signifies something called boy love. The pizza place next door to Comet Ping Pong Pizza, best pizza? Well, this was their logo until only a few weeks ago.
25: People don't know that because the mainstream media refuses to cover it. The entire mainstream media redefined what Pizzagate was to make it sound ridiculous and less believable. And then they had people like Megyn Kelly come in, interview James Elefantis didn't ask him any challenging questions.
1: A conspiracy theory that even the DC police say has no basis in fact
25: she didn't ask him any questions about the pictures of children on his instagram page looking abused being sexualized she didn't ask him about the pedophile talk so the whole mainstream media painted him as this poor victim as this person that was innocent that was just victimized as something that wasn't true but just his instagram page alone should have been enough for authorities to look into him
19: investigators have already proven there's nothing to the story right Well, actually, no, and that's what you need to know. For all that is here, there has not been one single public investigation of any of this, not from local police, not from the FBI, no one. And that has to be the big question, not for Podesta or for pizza parlor owners, but for law enforcement. Based on what may be or may not be here, the big question is, why hasn't any investigation taken place? This
25: is insane. So many people in the mainstream media have said, Pizzagate is a conspiracy theory. Pizzagate has been debunked. It has not been debunked. If it's been debunked, explain the code words. No one to this day, including John Podesta himself, can explain the code words in his emails. Hey, John Podesta, can you please explain why you have children rented for entertainment For your adult hot tub parties, no one has ever explained why John Podesta has literal pedophile cannibalism paintings all over his office and his home, Tony Podesta too. And then you look into the spirit cooking dinners, and you look into Marina Abramovic, who's the one that was conducting the spirit cooking dinners. Why are they going to spirit cooking dinners? Why are they sacrificing chicken to in their backyard? This isn't my words. This is their words. This is in their emails. I'd be willing to debate anyone who thinks that Pizzagate has been debunked.
23: You asked me when yeah. uh, when did uh, how am I getting additional briefings? That that was the first and last time I talked about. So to October
19: 9th is the last time you have heard from the FBI at all. Yes. You have not gotten an update on the investigation to your personal email.
23: That that is correct.
25: So not only did the mainstream media Lie to you about Pizzagate, and they actually told you that it was illegal to read John Podesta's emails on WikiLeaks. Chris Cuomo, with straight face on CNN, looked into the cameras and said, "It's illegal for you to read John Podesta's emails." Also interesting is remember, it's illegal
16: to possess
21: uh, these stolen documents. It's different for the media. So everything you learn about this, you're learning from us that's how
25: scared they are of those emails and that's how explosive the content in those emails are that they felt the need that they had to tell you you could not read those emails and if you do you might get arrested lie
21: it's different for the media so everything you learn about this you're learning from us i return
0: to the subject of marina abramovich spirit cooking and cannibalism shortly First, I'd like to dive into some of the specific emails mentioned in the clip, as well as some of the other noticeably out-of-the-ordinary emails released by WikiLeaks. First up, we have the email Liz Crokin referred to regarding children at adult hot tub parties. This email was sent by Tamara Luzado on October 8, 2015, to a group of adults, including John Podesta and his wife, Mary. Luzado is the same woman who worked as Hillary Clinton's chief of staff when she served in the U.S. Senate until 2009. It reads, quote, Subject, Farmer L Update, and welcome, Matt. With enormous gratitude to advance man extraordinaire Haber, I am popping up again to share our excitement about the reprise of our gang's visit to the farm in Lovettsville, and I thought I'd share a couple more notes. We plan to heat the pool, so a swim is a possibility. Bonnie will be Uber services to transport Ruby, Emerson, and Mauve Luzado 11, 9, and almost 7 so you'll have some further entertainment, and they will be in the pool for sure. And with the forecast showing prospects of some sun and a cooler temp of lower 60s, I suggest you bring sweaters or whatever attire will enable us to use our outdoor table with a pagoda overhead so we dine al fresco and ideally not al chilo. I am CCing Trudy to repeat the invite and sending pining wishes you could come to Rima, John P., and Lori and Chris, Kona Moore, Mrs. Farmer L., Tamara Luzato, Senior Vice President, Government Relations, the Pew Charitable Trust, 901 East Street, Northwest, Washington, D.C., end quote. Here are journalists David Seaman and Yvonne Parkinson discussing this email and who is Tamara Luzato. They also dive into the Instagram account of James Alafontis, owner of Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington, D.C., Alefantis is a known friend of John and Tony Podesta, who hosted fundraising events for both the Obama and Clinton presidential campaigns. Comet is also widely suspected to be a location where child sex abuse and ritualistic torture takes place.
14: Well, the first major one that really raised a lot of red flags to me and to many people um, across the country, really the world, is the Tamara Lozado email in which she was talking about to John Podesta and a few other adults. She was talking about kids being transported to an event for entertainment for these people. Um, the, the weird thing about that is that she was listing off the ages of the children just randomly. So this isn't like, you know, normal people, how they would normally speak to each other. How she's listing off the ages that are 7, 9, and 11, um, and then listing off the names. And she wanted to make sure that the people knew whoever was going there, uh, the people knew that these kids were going to be joining them inside this pool. Yeah, I and mean, what logical
26: explanation is that for an adult like John Podesta, a very busy man, to be informed by this woman, Ms. Lozado, uh, the kids are on their way over to your over to your pool. Uh, one is almost seven. Like, how is that relevant information for entertainment? I mean, isn't that the wording of the email? Yes. Uh, so you dug into uh, this Lozado person a bit further, and what did
14: what did you find? Uh, so internet researchers all across the world started really getting into this and trying to find out what they could about everybody that was involved in the email. The interesting thing was they found a website called an ED's, uh crib. And in this website, you can see a picture of what clearly resembles, or seems to resemble, uh, Tamara Lozado. So this woman has a bunch of kids surrounding her. Um, looks to be like anywhere from six months old to about five years of age. So she's talking about um, whoever is interested with this blog, she's talking about having a raw and uncut footage uh, with ever like whoever adult male or woman that wants time with these children. And what so what, kind, of, kind, what of
26: kind of normal mother is first of all putting pictures of her with her infants on right. the internet and then is offering raw and uncut of access. It's such a weird thing to say, and what other explanation is there? We know that these people exist, there have been a number of arrests this year, and that to me is the most logical explanation. Why were they coming over to his pool for entertainment? Well, it says for
14: entertainment,
26: so maybe these people
14: are into children. So the other strange thing I wanted to point out about this website that was possibly connected to this email to John Podesta in between him and Tamara Lozado, is that she's talking in this website with this photo where she has all these children surrounding her. She's calling herself Grand Tam. Now, if you think about it, Grand Tam would be a perfect kind of nickname for uh, Tamara, like Tamara lazada And so she called herself Grand Tam and the Lazazeds. So again, Tamara Lozada, las Lazazeds, is kind of like she's saying this is her little crew, this is her little posse that she's kind of selling off to the highest bidder. If you look at this website, it's very chilling, and you can obviously tell there's something very sinister going on. Another thing I wanted to point out on another uh, screenshot people were able to take before the website was eventually taken down is that there's another picture where she's with a baby, and there's uh, she mentions a farm. So she says, With a new due to boot, Evie doesn't know it yet, but she is looking forward to many visits to the farm with cousins Ruby, Emma, and Maeve. So these are the same uh, names that are also inside of the email to John Podesta, too. And that's the most striking thing that I saw. Wow. Said, and, then, and also in the email, she's talking about a farm, too. So the connections are getting pretty deep.
26: This was a chilling find to you in the same way that last year. Uh, the James Alephantis Instagram was a chilling find for me and many others because that was the moment where, okay, what are these people doing? What is this pizza shop owner doing? With a bunch of images on his public Instagram of infants and of infants with their mouths open what are these people commenting on uh, who know him socially when he 's not a caretaker for children they're not his own children what other conclusions can we draw at a certain point I mean the the level of creep factor of that Instagram was up there. Right.
14: And then with James Alfatas and his Instagram, he has a picture of this little girl with her hands taped down to a table.
26: An acquaintance of mine said, look, if all these elites are trafficking children and they're doing gross things like people on the internet seem to think, mm-hmm. if they're doing all this stuff, they're so busy, when do they have the time? If they were going to do this, they would have to use a code language and they would have to be very discreet. Correct. And I was like, dude. They're using a code language and they're trying to be discreet. He, right. didn't, he didn't know that his personal email account, not connected to any government agency or anything, right? Mm-hmm. It's his personal email. Uh, it's not registered, any kind of accountability thing. Uh, they had no idea that their emails would end up on WikiLeaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, pedophile apocalypse,
0: right? <laughs> Grand Tam certainly sounds a lot like Grand Dame. Coincidence? More disturbing, some of the tabs on the site are labeled with these horrific titles. Baby Ambien, Filth, Malpractice, Psychopath, Parental Manipulation, Ponzi Schemes, Tranquilizers, Public Intoxication, and EWB. EWB is an acronym for Evil White Bitch. Another email worth highlighting is from Herb Sandler at the Sandler Foundation to John and Mary Podesta. This lovely gem involves demolishing children and was sent on December 24th, 2015. It reads, quote, subject cheese. Mary and John, I think you should give notice when changing strategies which have been long in place. I immediately realized something was different by the shape of the box, and I contemplated who would be sending me something in the square-shaped box. Lo and behold, instead of pasta and wonderful sauces— it was a lovely tempting assortment of cheeses. Yummy. I am awaiting a, I am awaiting the return of my children and grandchildren from their holiday travels so that we can demolish them. Thank you so much. I hope you and your gang are well. I miss you both. Best wishes for a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Herb. P.S. Do you think I'll do better playing dominoes on cheese than on pasta?
14: So the other strange email that everybody started coming across and asking questions about is one entitled, CHEESE. So in this, uh, in this email, John Podesta is talking to somebody from the Sandler Foundation, and the email seems pretty you know innocent, pretty, you know, just a basic conversation, until you get to the very bottom, and then it says, P.S., do you think I'll do better playing dominoes on CHEESE than on PASTA? And so that's another one where it's clearly talking about some sort of code word language. We have to figure out what they're talking about. Some
26: researchers believe that dominoes is a code word for dominate, which makes mm-hmm. sense. It's very similar. And then of course cheese on pasta means basically would you prefer to dominate a young... Uh, a
14: little, girl, a little versus girl versus a little, a little boy. boy. And another weird thing is that all these the pizza shops that were in question Them using the FBI logo, the FBI said that the logos that they were using um, is usually pretty, um, that's what a lot of child pornographers and child traffickers use in order to kind of communicate with each other. Yeah,
26: WikiLeaks tweeted out that document right in the middle of their uh, batches of Podesta emails. Mm -hmm. Why tweet that out right in the middle of the Podesta emails unless you want your readers Draw a kind of connection, right? Because this was at the time when people were saying, wait, why is Podesta so interested in pizza?
14: Right. But yeah, I think WikiLeaks or Assange is definitely trying to display something and trying to tell us something.
0: Finally, we have an email sent from Hillary Clinton to Huma Abedin, Barack Obama, John Podesta, Ben Affleck, and Nancy Pelosi on January 25th, 2011, during Obama's second term. It reads, Dear Barack, when we began the pizza arrangement, I thought we were going to be more careful than this. Operating from the White House is not what I originally had in mind. Remember that the hot dogs can come, but if you make a spectacle out of it, that will be our downfall. Please know that I am speaking as a friend. You are the president and can do as you like, but I have to say I think it would be wiser to restrict this activity to our predetermined locations. Let me know what everyone thinks. We can vote on it if you'd like. Thanks, Hillary. Remember, the hot dogs can come, but if you make a spectacle out of it, that will be our downfall. I think it would be wiser to restrict this activity to our predetermined locations. Clinton is absolutely right. The cabal's downfall will be the public finding out about their crimes against humanity We will no longer allow them to brutalize, torture, and murder young children. The strange bedfellows of this cabal, Hillary Clinton, Huma Abedin, John Podesta, Ben Affleck, Nancy Pelosi, and yes, Barack Obama, along with many more. Recognizing Obama's true colors has been a challenge for me as I once admired this man. Obama inspired my political activism as a member of Students for Barack Obama in 2008. I voted for him twice and supported him throughout both terms, and I was dead wrong about this man. The Obamas are a conversation for another time, but the punchline is that Barry and his spouse are charlatans of the deep state, just like the rest of them. On Substack, I've included a WikiLeaks email from when John Podesta served as Obama's campaign manager. This October 2008 email shows that one month before Obama's first election, Michael Froman, an executive at the Giant Bank Citigroup, had sent the Obama transition team a list of recommended cabinet positions if he were to win. The list proved remarkably accurate for the cabinet appointees Obama named over the subsequent eight years. Mind you, this Citigroup executive selected the men and women to run our country during the depths of the global financial crisis, or the GFC. The GFC was a period of economic panic when the largest banks in the world siphoned trillions of dollars from American taxpayers to prevent a financial collapse which they had created. Citigroup was the largest beneficiary of the bailout, receiving over $517 billion. 23 of the 31 recommended names were appointed or nominated to Obama's administration over the next eight years. These names include Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, Attorney General Eric Holder, Secretary of Homeland Security Janet Napolitano, Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel, UN Ambassador Susan Rice, Secretary of Education Arne Duncan, Secretary of Health and Human Services Kathleen Sebelius, Director of the Office of Management and Budget Peter Orsog, Secretary of Veterans of Eric Shinseki, Director of Domestic Policy Council Melody Barnes, and Secretary of Treasury Timothy Geithner. Coincidentally, Froman is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, as are most of the recommended cabinet members. By the way, what was Ben Affleck doing on Hillary Clinton's email to Barack Obama, admonishing for his lack of care with their pizza arrangement, that operating from the White House was not what she originally had in mind, reminding him that the hot dogs can come, but if Barack makes a spectacle out of it, that will be their downfall soliciting feedback from everyone, suggesting they can vote on it if you'd like. Here, Hillary was clearly implying the individuals included in the email, Huma Abedin, Barack Obama, John Podesta, Nancy Pelosi, and Ben Affleck. Central Intelligence Agency talent, or rather, William Morrissey Endeavor Agency talent, Ben Affleck. Do these A-list Hollywood actors, directors, producers, and writers represent talent agencies like WME and CAA? Or are they in fact agents of the CIA tasked with an occult agenda of propagandizing, distracting, sexualizing, and desensitizing the public to violence?
16: One of the themes of Argo is, is about storytelling and how powerful it is from political theater to um, the way we kind of communicate to our children to the way that we inspire people, you know, and it's interesting that Hollywood and... Uh, You know, the clandestine services are both spend most of their time convincing people that something that's not true is in fact true.
14: Are there many actors in Hollywood who also moonlight as agents, do you think?
16: (laughs) I think there are probably quite a few, yes. Uh I think probably Hollywood is full of CIA agents, and we just don't know it. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised at all to discover that, you know, this was extremely common.
0: Are you a CIA?
16: I am, yes. (laughs) And now you've blown my cover, so there goes my career. Uh, I
0: hope the directing thing better work out. Who is who in the zoo? What the fuck is going on? International Tribunal for Natural Justice. Here is David Seaman testifying for the International Tribunal for Natural Justice, or ITNJ. The ITNJ Commission on Human Trafficking and Child Sex Abuse took place in London in 2018 and is an excellent resource for anyone looking for the truth about human trafficking and satanic ritualistic abuse. David Seaman is founder of Fulcrum News, which is an American research uh, site. He is a journalist who was fired from the renowned Huffington Post for his groundbreaking story on Pizzagate.
21: His continued commitment to advocating for civil liberties is a
23: benchmark for journalism. And we welcome you, David, most heartily to this Judicial Commission of Inquiry into Human Trafficking. And
0: child sex abuse. welcome.
26: Thank you for having me, and uh, thanks for making this a focus. Uh, of course, uh, even the White House has published, uh, has published an order go- an executive order going into how uh, widespread human trafficking is, what an epidemic it is, and there is just an article in The New York Post about how this is happening right underneath the people's noses uh, on a scale that is, frankly, uh, hard, to, uh, hard to fathom.
2: In my humble opinion, Pizzagate and the awareness that people like you, led by you, raised is what opened the public's mind. So with that, I turn it over to you. Tell us what you think we need to know. Thank
26: you so much, Robert. Uh, Coming from, I know you come from an organization that at one point in time had pledged to deceive all of us, right? Deceive all of us as the real state of the world. And then the Podesta emails come out and the days before the US election in 2016, in late 2016, these emails just come out seemingly out of nowhere, like the Twilight Zone. We only have a few days to pour through them, those of us in the research community, uh, with the group of researchers that became Fulcrum News. Uh, we only had a few days to pour through this stuff, and it wasn't just me and my team, but I was seemingly one of the only people in the US who were behind some kind of media bubble Or some kind of media blockade that did not want to talk about the contents of Podesta's emails at all. They did not want to talk about his emails. And I was just drawing simple conclusions about the content of those emails. Anybody in order of magnitude more busy than the average uh, journalist or the average professional, if they're using a code language in their emails, there's always a reason why. Uh, That's just simple research work 101. If somebody is a very busy person. And their day job, uh, their day job is organizing the presidential campaign for Hillary Clinton. Uh, if they're using a code language in their spare time, there's got to be a reason why. And so we just followed the path of uh, of least resistance, really. Aside from the trolling and the character attacks from the media matters type people, aside from that stuff, we just followed the path of least resistance, and we just followed Occam's razor as researchers. And that brings us to the present day. Uh, so thank you all very much. And uh, again, we were behind some kind of blockade. I mean, Europe europe knew this stuff was not only possible, it's par for the course, right? Jimmy Seville and the BBC having kind of covered up for him, and even, you know, the royal family having given him uh, a degree of legitimacy he should not have had. So Europe was open to this, this pedophilia stuff, the fact that it exists, unfortunately. That child abuse is widespread at the top levels of society. The Catholic Church, another predominantly European scandal. Uh, Europe knows it exists. Asia, I think, by default, knows the world is a very corrupt place. And in the US, we've been living behind some kind of Alice in Wonderland facade, like we're living in a Norman Rockwell painting. And no, we're living in like the opening scene of the movie Taken with Liam Neeson, you know, so very. Very interesting, this is finally blown open again, even the New York Post talking about how it's an epidemic. And now I'll, I'll leave it up in the, to all of you, uh, thank you.
21: Thanks very much for, for, for coming and giving some testimony in, in relation to this to the, to the court. What I'd really like to know is, and I think you, you, you're clearly at the center of it, is to really understand the scale um, of this problem at the highest levels. Um, obviously, we, we've, we've got some limitations on the use of names. Um, but if you could give us some idea of the scale and the, and the magnitude, uh, the methodology, and if you have the time as well to just give us an idea of, of, of how to follow the money.
26: Sure, I'm not an expert in any of those areas, but just broadly, I would have to say that what emerged is that the ruling families connected to the banking system. Again, I'm just giving the broad strokes here. There are people on your commission who are more expert in this area, and have worked in some of these intelligence agencies that were responsible uh, for doing this. And they probably have much more to say on it than I do. But just broadly, there were these ruling families due to their roles within the banking system and uh, within the oil industry to a lesser extent. They've become very wealthy over a short period of time. Compound interest, as it turns out, is one of the wonders of the world. When you're one of the ruling banking families, you can make so much money within a couple generations. And things go in a very sinister direction where they kind of co-opt, co-opt these cults that had existed for a very long time, uh, a cable network in the U.S., AHC, which is owned by Discovery, uh, Discovery Networks, which owns the Discovery Channel and many other uh, content providers in the U.S. Uh, AHC aired an hour-long special called Inside the Cult of Satan about how this pre-b- pre-biblical cult Uh, of which child abuse and human sacrifice is simply a part of what they do, uh, has been operating underground for centuries, and more recently has kind of, uh, you know, peaked its head up in the form of of, uh, institutionalized human trafficking and political elites being compromised by this stuff. So to get back to what I was saying, uh, the broad stroke here, I think, is that these banking families uh, in collusion maybe with the intelligence agencies, I don't quite know how this happened, began brownstoning, uh, brownstoning or pedofying a number of elected leaders, just either uh, selecting for leaders who are already perverts, uh, perverts and deviants, uh, selecting them because they can be compromised easily, and then giving them you know, the money and resources to seek national office, or uh, and in some cases just uh using that as a blackmail component. You know, if you want to get access to this stuff, well then you have to become a member of the club and this is how we this is how we control you. And so this was used as a means of control because we live in a postmodern age where you know, just photographing somebody smoking a joint or photographing somebody engaged in extramarital marriage. It's not what it was in the nineteen sixties. Nobody cares. So they had to go much deeper down the rabbit hole of human depravity. And as a result, you know, as these WikiLeaks emails showed, we have U.S. political elites who in their spare time, for whatever reason, are using a language that's known to federal law enforcement to be used by child traffickers. Uh, And we do know there are, you know, occult connections. Uh, Spirit cooking is done by many U.S. celebrities. Uh, And it's it's overtly occult. It's overtly satanic. Uh, So that's that's really uh, the broad strokes of what our research has popularized uh, with the help of many others. Here you have this Hillary Clinton campaign chairman who is the uh, White House White House chief of staff under Bill Clinton. Very powerful and busy guy using this code language of pizza and hot dogs. It recurs again and again. It keeps recurring i don't know what the source of the email leak was i, I do believe he was fished by somebody i believe somebody sent him a fake password reset email that said hey hey john Podesta, pick a new password and he types in something and then they have his new password and that's how i believe they got in i don't know who did it or their intentions but somehow these emails which are genuine uh, he has not denied that they're his emails These genuine emails from Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman end up on WikiLeaks uh, for millions of us to sift through just days before the U.S. presidential election. There's this panicked push to call it fake news. And this is when I knew something was this is when I knew something was deeply wrong because I had just begun to cover it. And then out of nowhere, I'm getting these trolls, uh, these character attack people. Uh, saying things about me and drawing conclusions from my past Uh, like just a full-blown character attack and I'm like whoa there's something going on here it's like I was thrown into an Aaron Brockovich movie all of a sudden you know like there's something up here that I'm just putting out a couple of pieces of internet content and suddenly my whole world is falling down like what on earth is this Uh, and I've been publishing for years online for various outlets and i Never seen anything like that, even back in the days of talking about the NSA openly and some of the uh, programs that Edward Snowden had outed. I would go into that stuff, experience nothing like this. And so I knew that that was a red flag. That was a tell. You know, if you're a poker player, that was a big tell that there's something here. And then uh, uh, the other thing, aside from the banning of the YouTube channel and the Twitter ban, there's just been so much censorship around this whole topic of Pizzagate, and we've had everybody from Comedy Central to the New York Times to the Washington Post uh, just, again, front line and say, Pizzagate is debunked fake news. It's very dangerous. It can hurt real people. It's very dangerous. Stay away from it. And, and you're like, wait a second. Well, hold on. It debunked by whom? Debunked by whom? What government agency, what law enforcement official which uh, agency anywhere uh, has said this is debunked, this is not real. We have no idea what John Podesta, at the very least, we have no idea what John Podesta is talking about in his emails. And uh, more probably, we know exactly what he's talking about, because again, there are people in federal law enforcement who, when when, when these emails came out, they went, oh my God, John Podesta appears to be into child trafficking. So Somewhere along the lines, the wires got crossed, and they began just pedophying political elites, these wealthy families who finance some of our presidential contenders, uh, families like the Rothschilds, I believe. Uh, Things got really messed up. And now because John Podesta is a dummy from a technological perspective and typed his password in and gave it to some hacker, some identity theft person, we don't know who it was, Uh, Necessarily. Uh, Because he did that, which by the way was a derivative, we know it was a derivative of the word password, right? Password using the at symbol, et cetera, instead of the letter A. Uh, Because of that fluke, uh, that fluke of nature, that fluke of fate, uh, we now have a different timeline in history where this cabal of weirdos who are in a sexual perversion, they all have to face the light of day thanks to the internet and thanks to internet researchers and thanks to commissions like yours.
2: What do you think your work at its best will do as we go forward? What, what impact might it have in the most positive sense of the word?
26: Thank you both for the question there. Uh, I think that we hit a critical mass where these things cannot be looked away from. And with that critical mass, you will have some of the machinery of the state move in and go after at least some of these people because their crimes are so egregious that once you have millions of people on sites like 4chan and 8chan, millions of young people analytically discussing these things, and on Reddit, of course, uh, you have millions of young people analytically discussing the Podesta emails and analytically going through the power structure of Lynn Rothschild and her family and how they financed the Clintons and how the Clintons had a voodoo doctor. Right, The Clintons had a freaking witch doctor at their, at their wedding. I mean, they just, they've just they pieced it together so well, the young people. There are millions of millennials and sub-millennials, as I call them, people in their early 20s. They've just pieced it all together, and they're walking around. They're walking around with a nearly complete puzzle board, you know, nearly complete puzzle board, and they're turning on a mainstream media that is still in full, you know, CIA mockingbird mode. There's nothing wrong with Hollywood, right? You know, Kevin Spacey's dad... Kevin Spacey's dad is not an alleged Nazi child rapist. You know, they're trying to cover up this thing, which is already bursting at the seams. So I hope that what I did was increase public awareness. Because, you know, if you look at my background, I'm former Huffington Post, a former HuffPo, is, as you guys pointed out, former business insider. Uh, before that, the Street.com, which is a financial publication on Wall Street. Uh, for mm-hmm. a little while, Entrepreneur Magazine's website. So I'm not like a crop circle chaser, you know. I'm not chasing the crop circles and looking for the interview with Bigfoot and all that. And to suddenly be attacked non-stop. oh, David Seaman, you're a crazy person. You're a crazy person to think that John Podesta is a bad person. Like, where is this coming from? It gave me a little taste for what some of the victims must go through yeah. when they do their gang stalking and all that. Of like, oh, you weren't abused, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's how it functions. They have this organ, this organ of online harassment that then, if you're, if you're influential enough, it extends into real-world harassment. But to answer your question, uh, we've seen the unsealed indictment, which was previously sealed. You know, it was filed under seal by the court. We have seen the unsealed indictment of Keith Renier, who is known as the vanguard. He's the head of this weird sex cult in Canada, uh, NXIVM. If you look at some of their members, some of their members are also uh, active or past members of the Clinton Global Initiative uh, and many other members are Hollywood actresses who are quite well connected politically. So it's all just one nasty spiderweb. And I think my work and many other people's work has helped uh, that spiderweb just reach the light of day. And now what happens, I have no idea, right? We're in uncharted waters, but something's gonna happen to some of these people the machinery of the state is starting to work, at least in the case of Keith Rainier, as they were branding women, branding women and brainwashing them into a literal sex cult, right? I call it the Canadian Illuminati, and it involves the Bronfman's, one of the wealthiest uh, wealthiest families in Canada. This is a nasty spider web that goes out in a million directions. As, as for naming names, uh, I have no secrets. You know, I've been very clear. I think there's something wrong with the Podesta brothers. I think there's something wrong with the Clintons and many, many connected to the Clintons. Uh, those are the big names. I've been very vocal about that.
0: As for the other powerful people connected to the Clinton Podesta human trafficking crime ring, suspects at the top of that list include pedophile Jeffrey Epstein, his Madame Ghislaine Maxwell, daughter of media tycoon and Mossad asset Robert Maxwell, and the Rothschild crime family. Here is Whitney Webb in Volume 2 of her book One Nation Under Blackmail, exploring the Epstein-Clinton-Rothschild nexus of corruption.
6: Introduction, Volume 2 The July 2019 arrest of Jeffrey Epstein and his subsequent death in August brought national as well as international attention to a sex ring where certain members of the power elite sexually abused and exploited female minors and young women. Epstein's death, officially ruled a suicide, has been treated skeptically by many for a variety of reasons. Regardless of the real circumstances of his death, it has led to scores of Americans embracing the view that his death was both intentional and necessary to protect his powerful co-conspirators and the full extent of his covert and illegal activities. Even if one chooses not to entertain such disconcerting possibilities, it is quite apparent that most of those who aided or enabled Epstein will never see the inside of a prison cell. Though Ghislaine Maxwell is now serving a 20-year sentence, others known to have been intimately involved in his illegal activities continue to enjoy protection from the so-called sweetheart deal, or plea deal that followed Epstein's first run-in with the law for his sex trafficking activities in the mid-2000s. In addition, Ghislaine Maxwell's recent trial saw information involving third parties redacted, leading many to believe that the public will never know the names of the Johns or clients who benefited from the sex trafficking activities of Epstein and Maxwell and who were potentially blackmailed by them. Yet, for both Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, there is much more to the story. This became apparent when it emerged that Alex Acosta, then serving as Secretary of Labor in the Trump administration, had disclosed to the Trump transition team that he had previously signed off on Epstein's sweetheart deal because Epstein had belonged to intelligence. Acosta, then serving as U.S. Attorney for Southern Florida, had also been told by unspecified figures at the time that he needed to give Epstein a lenient sentence because of his links to intelligence. When Acosta was later asked if Epstein was indeed an intelligence asset in 2019, Acosta chose to neither confirm nor deny the claim. Other hints of a connection between Epstein and intelligence subsequently emerged, with reporting from a variety of sources that Epstein was affiliated with the CIA, Israeli intelligence, or both. Despite the implications and significance of these connections to intelligence, most of mainstream media declined to dig deeper into these claims, instead largely focusing on the salacious aspects of the Epstein case. The narrative soon became that Epstein was an anomaly, the sole mastermind of an industrial sex-trafficking enterprise and a talented con artist. Even his closest associates and benefactors, like retail billionaire Leslie Wexner, have been taken at their word that they knew nothing of Epstein's crimes, even when there is considerable evidence to the contrary. Indeed, it was later stated by Cindy McCain, wife of former Senator John McCain, that we all knew what he, Epstein, was doing, at an event in January 2020 where she also claimed that authorities were afraid to properly apprehend him. It
15: hides in plain sight. Epstein was hiding in plain sight. We all knew about him. We all knew what he was doing. But we had no one that was, no um, uh, legal aspect that would go after him. They were afraid of him. For whatever reason, they were afraid of him.
6: If he was such an anomaly and a standalone con artist, how was he single-handedly able to intimidate the law enforcement apparatus of an entire nation for decades? The claim that Epstein did not have powerful backers and benefactors stands on incredibly shaky ground. Oddly enough, mainstream reporting on Epstein was once relatively open about his alleged intelligence ties, with British media reporting as early as 1992 and throughout the early 2000s that Epstein had ties to both U.S. and Israeli intelligence. In addition, also in the early 1990s, Epstein's name was mysteriously dropped from a major investigation into one of the largest Ponzi schemes in history, even though he was labeled the mastermind of that swindle in grand jury testimony. Around the same time, subsequently released White House visitor logs show that Epstein visited the Clinton White House 17 times, accompanied on most of these visits by a different, attractive young woman. Reporting on those visitor logs was largely done by a single media outlet, Britain's The Daily Mail, with hardly any American mainstream media outlets bothering to investigate these revelations about Epstein and a former U.S. president. Why was Epstein so heavily protected from justice for decades, in connection to both his sex trafficking crimes and his financial crimes? Why have the once commonly reported intelligence connections of Jeffrey Epstein now being relegated to conspiracy theory despite evidence to the contrary If powerful senators knew what Epstein was doing to young women and girls who else knew and why wasn't something done This two-volume book endeavors to show why Jeffrey Epstein was able to engage in a series of mind-boggling crimes for decades without incident far from being an anomaly Epstein was one of several men who, over the past century, have engaged in sexual blackmail activities designed to obtain damaging information, i.e. intelligence, on powerful individuals with the goal of controlling their activities and securing their compliance. Most of these individuals, including Epstein himself, have their roots in the covert world where organized crime and intelligence have intermingled and often cooperated for the better part of the last 90 years, if not longer. Perhaps most shockingly, these men are all interconnected to various degrees. And those connections, networks, and associations were the subject of Volume 1 of this book. In Volume 2, We are introduced to Jeffrey Epstein. Detailed here are the key players in his rise and early career, many of whom have not been properly scrutinized by the media, and the existing evidence of Epstein's connections to intelligence agencies and the networks detailed at length in Volume 1. We then turn to Epstein's connections to retail mogul Leslie Wexner, with a focus on Wexner's own rise his particular brand of philanthropy and the many roles that Epstein went on to play in his business empire, including some with apparent links to espionage activity. Also examined in detail is the history behind Ghislaine Maxwell and her relationship with Epstein in the wake of her father's death in 1991. While the sex trafficking activities of Epstein and Maxwell are discussed at length and examined in depth, This book gives particular attention to the dramatically underreported relationship that Jeffrey Epstein had with the Clinton White House from 1993 through 1995, and the significance of his 17 known White House meetings. Epstein brought many attractive young women with him to these meetings, and many of his meetings were with a man named Mark Middleton. Middleton, who died under suspicious circumstances in May 2022, was embroiled in foreign espionage activities at the time he was meeting with Epstein. Those activities were later investigated by Congress in relation to illegal fundraising efforts for Bill Clinton's 1996 reelection campaign. Epstein's activities at the Clinton White House and in other parts of the country during this same period in time point toward a major scandal of the Clinton era that has yet to be properly investigated. Volume 2 of One Nation Under Blackmail concludes by examining the relationship between Jeffrey Epstein and the Maxwells and big tech, particularly Microsoft executives such as Bill Gates and Nathan Merveld, among others. The book closes out tracing how at least two of Ghislaine Maxwell's siblings appear to have major intelligence connections as well as great influence in big tech while also tracing their ties to the apparent successors to the stolen Promise software. The theft of that software, as noted in Volume 1, has been intimately related to the activities of Robert Maxwell. In closing, it becomes evident that the nature of blackmail evolved with society's increasing dependence on technology. Now, technology-derived blackmail is harvested through systems of mass surveillance, and sex blackmailers, such as those discussed in Volume 1 as well as Jeffrey Epstein, became increasingly irrelevant and expendable. It is perhaps for this reason, as noted in this book, that Epstein and the Maxwells began efforts to influence and even blackmail top figures in Silicon Valley soon after Epstein's first arrest for sex trafficking in the mid-2000s. Epstein also began making major investments in data harvesting firms and those involved in mass surveillance. The end result is that the long-time reliance on the control of information, including information used for blackmail, by the power structures discussed throughout both volumes of this book, has led them to create a society that gives them access to more information than ever before. Enabled by remarkable advances in technology, today the United States and much of the world have their digital secrets in the hands of people who will do absolutely anything to maintain their wealth, power, and control. Essentially, the U.S., rather than one nation under God, has become one nation under blackmail. Chapter 16 Crooked Campaigns A Donor to Remember The earliest official interaction between Jeffrey Epstein and the Clinton White House took place in 1993. For Epstein, it would be the first of 17 visits he would make to the executive residence in just under two years. Epstein's first visit took place on February 25, 1993, and he had been invited, per visitor logs, by Rubin. The location of the visit was noted as WW, for the West Wing. The Rubin listed here is believed to be Robert Rubin, who at that time was serving as the Director of the National Economic Council, NEC, as well as Assistant to the President for Economic Policy. The NEC coordinated all economic policy recommendations that went into the President's office, Meaning that any meeting between or involving both Rubin and Epstein would have likely related to economic policy. If Rubin was indeed responsible for Epstein's initial entry into the White House, this is highly significant. Right before taking his post at the National Economic Council when Bill Clinton became president, Rubin had been serving as co chairman of Goldman Sachs, a post which he assumed in 1990. Before that, he was Goldman Sachs' chief operating officer and its vice chairman from 1987 to 1990. That means that Rubin held the top leadership posts at the bank prior to and during its involvement with Robert Maxwell's theft of hundreds of millions from his own company's pension funds to stave off the collapse of his business empire. Goldman Sachs' role in the financial fraud and illegal activities that directly preceded Maxwell's death, and were alleged to have played some role in his demise, stands out among Maxwell's other banks. Per the official report by Britain's Department of Trade and Industry on the scandals that erupted in the wake of Maxwell's death, Goldman Sachs bore substantial responsibility for allowing Mr. Maxwell to manipulate the stock market prior to the collapse of his businesses. In addition, before Maxwell died, Trade and Industry Secretary Peter Lilly had received complaints before Maxwell died about dealings between Captain Bob's other public company, Maxwell Communications Corp., and Wall Street bankers Goldman Sachs, according to The Guardian. Rubin, in his role at the time, likely had knowledge of these shady dealings in the lead-up to Maxwell's death and almost certainly played a major role in dealing with the subsequent fallout, as Goldman Sachs, along with the UK government and Shearson Lehman, were tasked with replenishing the stolen pension fund money. In summary, one of the top executives of Robert Maxwell's main bank with substantial responsibility for at least one of his major financial crimes was the person to first connect Jeffrey Epstein with the Clinton White House. Furthermore, Rubin would become Treasury Secretary at the tail end of 1994, the year where Epstein made 12 of his 17 White House visits. While Robert Rubin served as Clinton's second Treasury Secretary, his deputy was Lawrence Larry Summers, who would later take over for Rubin as Treasury Secretary in 1999, and who, along with Rubin, helped engineer the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act. This allowed an economic bubble to inflate, ultimately resulting in the 2008 crisis. Epstein is also alleged to have played some role in the 2008 financial crisis by apparently helping to instigate the collapse of Bear Stearns. As previously noted in Chapter 14, Summers also had a close relationship with Henry Rozovsky who was intimately involved with the Wexner Foundation and associated with Jeffrey Epstein at the time. Summers, whose very close ties to Epstein were also discussed in Chapter 14, was known to have taken at least one of his flights on Epstein's plane in 1998, when he was serving under Rubin as Deputy Secretary of the Treasury. A 2003 report in the Harvard Crimson, written at the time Summers was Harvard's president, noted that the two men's friendship began a number of years ago before summers became harvard's president and even before he was the secretary of the treasury with respect to rubin and summers it is worth examining a claim made by epstein associate leon black of apollo global management in 2020 black claimed that in addition to himself clients of epstein's included various heads of state as well as a U.S. Treasury Secretary. Though he didn't name any of those people, it seems likely that either Rubin or Summers was the U.S. Treasury Secretary in question. Around the same time as Epstein's first Rubin-facilitated White House meeting, Epstein also officially became a Clinton donor. Indeed, Epstein's second visit to the White House, which he made alongside Ghislaine Maxwell in September 1993, was to attend a reception for donors who had specifically contributed to White House renovation efforts, with those efforts having begun in November 1992. Sometime prior to that reception, Epstein had donated $10,000 to the White House Historical Association for a specific project to redecorate the White House. It is unclear when exactly between November 1992 and September 1993 Epstein would have become a donor. Most likely, he had donated by the time of his first White House visit in February 1993, if not before, given the Clinton family's long association with pay-to-play politics. Friends in High Places Aside from Epstein's growing importance as a Clinton donor, It appears that 1995 was also the year that the relationship between the Clintons and Epstein became more intimate in other ways. In a letter dated April 27, 1995, Lynn Forrester, now Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, wrote, Dear Mr. President, It was a pleasure to see you recently at Senator Kennedy's house. There was too much to discuss and too little time. Using my 15 seconds of access to discuss Jeffrey Epstein and currency stabilization, I neglected to talk to you about a topic near and dear to my heart, namely affirmative action and the future. Forrester de Rothschild then states that she had been asked to prepare a memo on behalf of George Stephanopoulos, former Clinton communications director and currently a broadcast journalist with ABC News. Stephanopoulos attended a dinner party hosted by Epstein at his now infamous Manhattan townhouse in 2010, years after Epstein's first conviction. While it is unknown exactly what Forrester de Rothschild discussed with Clinton regarding Epstein and currency stabilization, a potential lead may lie in the links of both Forrester de Rothschild and Epstein to Deutsche Bank. As noted previously in Chapter 12, Epstein boasted of skill at playing the currency markets with very large sums of money, and that Epstein had several meetings with Harold Levin, then head of Wexner Investments, in which he enunciated ideas about currencies that Levin found incomprehensible. Epstein also often claimed that he had made his fortune investing clients' money, including Wexner's, into currency markets. Epstein's more recent activity in currency markets, in the years that followed his first conviction, appears to have been achieved through his long-standing relationship with Deutsche Bank, as the New York Times reported in 2019. Epstein appears to have been doing business and trading currencies through Deutsche Bank until just a few months ago, according to two people familiar with his business activities. But as the possibility of federal charges loomed, the bank ended its client relationship with Mr. Epstein. It is not clear what the value of those accounts was at the time they were closed. As previously mentioned, the son of Esther Salas, the judge set to oversee a case against Deutsche Bank related to its role in enabling Epstein's financial activities, was murdered right before that court case was to begin. The alleged assailant was Roy Den Hollander, formerly of Kroll Associates. Forrester de Rothschild, at the time of Epstein's arrest and still today, has served as an advisor to the Deutsche Bank Microfinance Consortium for several years and is currently a board member of the Alfred Herrhausen Society of International Dialogue of Deutsche Bank. Her close relationship with Epstein may be part of the reason why Deutsche Bank kept Epstein as a client for so long, despite years of warnings from bank employees regarding questionable activities connected to Epstein's accounts. At the time the 1995 letter was written, Forrester de Rothschild was a member of Clinton's National Information Infrastructure Advisory Council, and during the latter years of Clinton's second term, she also served on the advisory board for then-Secretary of Energy Bill Richardson. Richardson would later become one of the Clinton-era officials closest to Jeffrey Epstein. Forrester de Rothschild had apparently known Epstein for at least a few years before she wrote the 1995 letter. Epstein had apparently played a role in her divorce from Andrew Steen, a major figure in New York democratic politics, in 1993. According to a 2019 Vanity Fair article, Epstein claimed that Forrester de Rothschild had needed his financial help during her divorce and that he had graciously floated her, a claim that a Forrester de Rothschild spokesperson denied at the time of the article's publication. A few years later, as a gift to Epstein, Forrester de Rothschild introduced him to Alan Dershowitz. Who would allegedly become entangled in his sex trafficking activities and later become one of Epstein's defense attorneys? Forrester de Rothschild also has ties to Ronald Lauder, through her position on the board of directors of Estee Lauder Companies. Forrester de Rothschild also partnered with Matthew Bronfman, son of mega group billionaire Edgar Bronfman, to create the investment advisory firm Bronfman E. L. Rothschild L.P. More relevant, however, is Forrester de Rothschild's decades-long relationship with the Clintons. Forrester de Rothschild is a longtime associate of the Clintons and has been a major donor to both Bill and Hillary Clinton since 1992. Their ties were so close that Forrester de Rothschild and her current husband, Evelyn de Rothschild, spent the first night of her honeymoon at the Lincoln bedroom in the White House while Clinton was president. She and Rothschild had first been introduced at a Bilderberg conference by former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, whose close relationship with Hillary Clinton is well documented. Kissinger's role in the Promise scandal as an enabler of Robert Maxwell's sale of the bugged software to Sandia National Laboratory was discussed in Chapter 9. Furthermore, a leaked email between Forrester de Rothschild and Hillary Clinton saw Clinton request penance from Forrester de Rothschild for asking Tony Blair to accompany Clinton on official business while she was Secretary of State, preventing Blair from making a planned social visit to Forrester de Rothschild's home in Aspen, Colorado. Humbly requesting forgiveness is not something Hillary Clinton is known for, given that her former bodyguard once said, She could make Richard Nixon look like Mahatma Gandhi.
0: A couple of things I'd add to Webb's commentary. First, Matthew and Edgar Bronfman are members of the Canadian elite family who founded alcohol giant Seagram Company. Matthew's sister Claire, Edgar's daughter, was recently sentenced to seven years prison for her involvement in the Nixium cult. Nixium is believed to be a feeder cult into the deeper Illuminati secret society structure. And second, the Rothschild family is believed to sit at the top of the cabal hierarchy, as they have since the Bavarian Illuminati was formed in 1776. The patriarch of the family, Meyer Amschel Rothschild, had five sons who spread across Europe to establish banking dynasties in the financial capitals. The most successful of these sons were Nathan Meyer Rothschild in London and James de Rothschild in Paris. It's widely suspected that Evelyn de Rothschild, Nathan Meyer's great-great-grandson and Lynn Forrester's husband, ruled the top of the Illuminati structure until his death in 2022. Since his passing, it's suspected his cousin once removed, Jacob Rothschild, now sits atop the Illuminati hierarchy. The Rothschild family has sustained their position at the top of this cabal of corruption through utter cunning and ruthlessness. The Rothschilds have held off the threat from other elite families by interbreeding their bloodlines and creating a multi-generational incestuous family tree to keep the interests of their extended family aligned. Here is the WikiLeaks email web mentioned between Hillary Clinton and Lynn Forrester de Rothschild regarding penance. Sent on to September 23rd, 2010. Subject, info for you. Quote, Lynn, I was trying to reach you to tell you and Teddy that I asked Tony Blair to go to Israel as part of our full court press on keeping the Middle East negotiations going. He told me that he had a commitment in Aspen with you two in the conference, but after we talked, he decided to go and ask me to tell you. He is very sorry, obviously, but I'm grateful that he accepted my request. I hope you all understand and give him a rain check. If you are interested, he might be able to satellite in if you have the technology available. He should land around 5 a.m. Aspen time. Let me know what penance I owe you. And please explain to Teddy. As ever, H. To which Lynn replied, Hillary, we of course understand and thank you for personally reaching out to us. It is a big loss for the weekend, but as we know, it does not add up to a hill of beans. You are the best and we remain your biggest fans. Sweet dreams and Godspeed with everything you are doing. OXOXO, Lynn. Why is the sitting U.S. Secretary of State asking Lynn Forrester Day Rothschild, a private citizen for permission for the former Prime Minister of the UK to join her on a diplomatic trip. Why is she asking Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, wife of Evelyn de Rothschild? Why does she feel the need to offer penance to Mrs. Rothschild for the change? Who is who in the zoo? What the fuck is going on? The truth is, these elites run the planet like it's their chessboard. The one thing the crime families at the top agree upon is that the public must be deceived and that absolute power corrupts absolutely. The clowns of this breakaway civilization act like they're the cast of the Game of Thrones. Except, instead of the hot dragon princess, it's a bunch of disgusting old fucks raping, torturing, and murdering children. One last vampire who makes a ghastly appearance in the WikiLeaks Pizzagate scandal is Marina Abramovich, Performance artist and suspected high priestess of the Illuminati. Coincidentally, on Substack, I've included a picture of Jacob Rothschild and Marina Abramovich standing in front of a classical piece of art. The artwork's title Satan Summoning His Legions. Symbolism will be their downfall. With that, we conclude episode 56, Who is Hillary Rodham Clinton, Part 1. Continue on to episode 57. For Who is Hillary Rodham Clinton? Part 2. In part 2, we discuss Marina Abramovich, spirit cooking, cannibalism, and adrenochrome. We get into the snuff film industry, the existence of deep underground military bases or dumps and the alleged snuff film Frazzle Drip featuring Hillary Rodham Clinton and Huma Abedin. From there, we discuss the Clintons' allegations of potential assassinations, including suspicious Deaths of Vince Foster, John F. Kennedy Jr., Seth Rich, Jeffrey Epstein, Jean-Luc Brunel, and Mark Middleton. From there, we discuss corruption involving the Clinton Foundation and their destruction of the island nation of Haiti. We end this conversation with a re-examination of our elections with case studies on both the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections. We ask, who is the military-industrial complex? And I end sharing some thoughts on losing your heroes and finding real ones.
27: A strong baritone Echoes through the church Thought this would help you, but it just made things worse. Hot dog and a Pepsi, four dollars in change. You chew through it so swiftly that you don't taste a thing. And what is warm can be again You're just like a fire blown out by the wind And what is warm can be again You're a hopeful book of matches, only one has been spent So baby wipe the still sad look off your face Before your dreams start boarding that train I know your pride has a miserable taste But you best get to swallowing We talk about Justin. We talk about pain And then we buy greeting cards and we don't know what to say And time is a soldier Just marches on We've got to look toward the future Because the past is all gone And what is warm can be again You're just like a fire Blown out by the wind And what is warm can be again You're a whole book of matches. Only one has been spent So baby wipe the still sad look off your face Before your dreams start boarding at your aid. I know your pride has a miserable taste But you best get to swallowing You gotta wrestle with your best soul Not just to manifest in someone else. We might find a heaven in this dark hell. We might find a heaven in this dark hell. Yeah, and what is warm can be again. You're just like a fire blown out by the wind And what is warm can be again You're a whole book of matches, only one has been spent So baby, have to still sad look off your face Before your dreams start boarding that terrain I know your pride has a miserable taste but you best get to swallowing